The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports. They're incredible. I mean, it's just it's not usually in awe of teams that much, but I just can't help being in awe of Barcelona Femini. Like, they're just incredible. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's half past seven on Monday morning. You are very welcome along. It's Sharon Shea with you all the way through until 10. I'm going to tell you what's coming up on the show straight off the bat this morning. Your comments, obviously, youtube.com forward slash off the ball and at off the ball AM on Twitter. Our performance rankings are imminent. Kevin Caban is going to join us from Qatar at 7.55. Uh, Nadia Manu is going to join us at a quarter past eight. Uh, it'll be specifically about the England game. Uh, we'll reflect on a busy weekend of Club GAA at around about 7.35. Vinnie Perth is going to give us some, uh, 8.35, uh, some analysis on the tactical trends emerging and the big storylines from the World Cup. And then Alan Quinlan's going to join us after a very interesting weekend of rugby. Great performance from Leinster, but I think more importantly, a brilliant comeback from a perilous position by Munster as well. So if you've got thoughts on anything that has happened or is happening at this stage, We'd love to hear from you and then we'll play out with some uh, goodness from the Sunday pay-per-view, which is probably going to focus on the boxing, I think. Is, is that the bit that we have? I'll, we'll tell you more about that a little bit later on. But yeah, let's get straight into it. It's time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an all-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on their second-half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. Boom. Right, Shane. Yes, we'll start. A lonely nation turns its eyes to you. It does. A nation turns its lonely eyes to you? A uh, bit of both, potentially. Um, but I'm glad that people are turning their lonely eyes to us because there's plenty to talk about this morning, Ger. Uh, we should start with some um, batshit crazy comments from Arsene Wenger across the weekend. So, uh, for people who are unaware now, Arsene Wenger, the former Arsenal manager, is taking the, the FIFA coin. Uh, he's working with FIFA on their uh, technical committee. He's also their head of global football development. Uh, speaking of the media briefing, Yesterday is where these comments came to light. So uh, there, of course, have been uh, protests from, from a number of countries, and pro- perhaps most notably Germany and Denmark at this World Cup. The hands over the mouths from the German team, the Danish team, uh, kind of setting the way and uh, standing out from other teams in, in actually doing so- some minor things at this World Cup. Um, the point of information, did he mention Australia? Uh, I don't know if he quoted any particular teams. Right, well, he said generally speaking. Yeah, but it, yeah, well, well, this, you do the quotes there. This is the point. Sorry. So the quotes from Wenger were, the teams performed well, at the World Cup, were mentally ready. They had focused on the competition and not on political demonstrations. Now, these were the comments that kind of have rubbed people up the wrong way because what he's saying is, focus on the football and you'll be grand, lads. And uh, concentrate on anything else, human rights, um, standing up for LGBT, uh, women's rights, that is just a distraction and it's going to affect you on the pitch. Um, so fairly mental comments. Like There were other uh, comments he was talking about... Um, uh, the, the World Cup as, as, as a whole and little things that have been noticed by the FIFA Technical Committee they noticed that attacking teams were forced to find space on the flanks in this World Cup which is something new opponents uh, now better protect the centre of the pitch and another thing that the, uh, the role of goalkeepers offering to receive the ball at their feet has um, dramatically increased 70% since the 2018 World Cup so those were the footballing things he noticed but I guess it was the comments on not being distracted by everything else that uh, has stood out, stood out mostly from Arsene Wenger. Like you know, yesterday. fair play to Arsene Wenger. When when you buy him, he stays bought, <coughs> and uh, it's clear that he's working for FIFA and he's towing the FIFA party line. And um, that's not really what the world needs at the moment, is it? No, and like it's just wrong, the wrong timing as well. The World Cup is still ongoing. He's basically essentially warning countries who are between now and the end of the World Cup planning anything 
uh, because of course the knockout rounds is when the eyeballs increase perhaps on the World Cup and uh, now would be the time to do something even in the World Cup I'd love to see a team get to the World Cup final and, and have a protest of of actual essence it's not too late it doesn't feel like it's going to happen no. you can't really see any of the remaining teams suddenly deciding to uh, locate their moral compass which has been buried deep uh, in their millions but I would point out that Australia are one of the most vociferous and first yeah. out the gate and they've like so their manager's disappointed that they didn't do more against Argentina but they performed bloody well like they got their whole country behind them they have created memories that will last a lifetime uh, they have, you know, injected the game at a local level with a massive surge of interest and, like, nearly created at least a draw slash shock against Argentina. Yeah, that's a fair point. And they were, as you say, one of the teams that stood up and, and said something of note. Like, the, the, the reason for the timing of these comments from Wenger is because they were, it was FIFA's analysis of the group stages. So, the group stages being over, they're... Uh, Head of um, Glo- chief of global football development stands up and, and points out all the things that he said about the World Cup group stages to that point. The point is, he didn't have to say this. Like he could have said all his little comments about the, the ball being played out wide more often, the goalkeepers being better with their feet. Um, that's all fine and well, but to, to just little throw in a, a comment like that was was very pointed. I'm not saying it came from upper brass. Uh, but there's a weird feeling about little things of this World Cup. The fact that Gianni Infantino pops up on screen at least once every game. It's uh, a lot, isn't it? It's bizarre. And, and that, that strikes now, he, me as something that's, well, that's on purpose. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he is very famous now. Like, uh, I'm interested to see him in the crowd. Sometimes he's not paying any attention. Sometimes yeah. he looks very bored. Sometimes there's nobody sitting beside him. I think, he's been, I think they've probably been told, throw him up on screen there once again. Keep well, his keep his face famous. How is it? That's what he wants. I, I, I don't think he needs it, though. I mean, I understand the point you're making, right? Yeah. But, like, somebody somewhere thinks it's a good idea to put the boss on telly. FIFA, you know? yeah. They've, like, they've, he's discussed it with them, surely. I mean, it, it seems like the type of thing that they would have discussed. Well, uh, You don't put your boss on TV without asking him. You, you do. You do. Yeah. You do it You do it for an attaboy. Like, I, I think the politics of that are, are weird. The whole kind of... Um, at the same time, right? He's He's pointedly not the boss. Like... Qatar are the boss. Yeah, you know? on this occasion. Well, for, for the duration of this whole thing, he is a guest there. He's, he's using Qatar to make loads and loads of money for FIFA, and I presume he's getting very well ahead himself. And, um, and so uh, it's definitely an, an interesting dynamic. That like, what, Why is he on screen so often? And yet at the same time, I'm always interested to see what the response is like. The, the sound seems to be on a massive delay from the, yeah. the crowd as well. So you can hear, like, you can hear the crowd go mad... 45 seconds well not 45 but 12 to 15 seconds after whatever it is has been on the big screen in the stadium um, but maybe some days he, he's not feeling like he, has, he doesn't feel like he, he looks well maybe he's felt cute. the wrong side of bed might delete later he might, he might have woke up and, and gone today I feel like not being on screen because he likes to analyse how he feels on a, on a given day and that's why I think that it's more likely that um, they've decided they're going to be putting him on screen you or better watch yourself here potentially because, like, let's face it, right? He wanted the Budweiser money, right? There's no way the FIFA did not want the Budweiser money. There's no way that they were like happy to just go. Yeah, I'm going to go back to. Um, yeah, I'm going to go to one of our best customers, friends, and partners, sponsors. Yeah. Money is money. Purveyors of money, mm-hmm. and tell them sorry, we, we can't take your money. <laughs> can't take your money. Literally days before the World Cup. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, um, but it is interesting that he's always on screen. It's bizarre. 
Um, now, Bladder would have been on screen a fair bit. I just don't remember if it was as, as egregious as this. So It's so pointed. It's like he pops up on screen and for some games he's getting booed by the crowd. Well, that's why I don't think it's... I, I, I don't think they're asking him. Yeah, but the booing has stopped. I can't hear it anymore. Well, maybe maybe it's the feed that we're being filtered, but it, just, see, if it, see, it all seems a little bit weird. Um, in tandem with Wenger's strange comments. No need to say what he said. Yeah, but obviously he felt like there was a need to say it, you know? Yeah, but that's why he wanted to say it. Uh, so while, while he's, he's doing his master's work, he also wanted to do his master's work. He felt like this is the type of thing that's important for him to say, which, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. Wenger was amazing for that short window and then mediocre for a long time. And now, you know, what have you done for me lately, Arsene? Never once mentioned in dispatches about the French job. Never once. Which seems Not like strange. on a long list of candidates. Obviously, the French know something. They're like, no. Are you saying, are you, this is like David Beckham wasn't world class? Are you saying Wenger wasn't a world class manager at one point? No, he was very, 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 very good. At he the wasn't a world class manager. When he, uh, he was clearly a world class manager, right? Yeah, when he, when he um, had the market intelligence that nobody else had of the French market and were able to buy good French players, like, yeah. you know, good, good scouting from abroad. Who knew that that would be something worth bringing to the Premier League? Mm hmm. But, um, this but is that what, wore off and look now in fairness the team did still always qualify for the Champions League which you know at the time there was no none of the Gulf money slushing through so maybe it was easier yeah um, it, what annoys me about this uh, at the weekend listening to, to, to Finger was that even United fans have a massive soft spot I, I don't want to speak for all of them but a big soft spot for Arsene Wenger because of that right at the end you know uh, at the end when you got the best you got the best of it he stayed beaten yeah, yeah, but I mean... Kept cozying up to Ferguson at the end. Yeah, well, the same way United fans would have like had a... house-trained dog. <laughs> well, United haven't had a good record against Liverpool in recent years, but they probably have a soft spot for Klopp because of the type of person he is. I'm not speaking for all United fans. Some United fans are probably screaming at me right now, going, nah, I don't like Klopp, which is fair enough, but uh, he's just a likeable guy, as was Wenger. But that's what surprised me by the comments on, on Sunday. So, felt pointed, felt... I'm not going to say a directive, but... A little bit uneasy, just like the, the Infantino popping up on screen all the time. It just feels like a FIFA, um, North Korea-created um, propaganda imagery. That's, that's what the whole weekend felt like to me. When, you, when you're seeing Infantino pop up on screen, you're seeing Wenger's comments. It's like, do you really need to say that? He's also wrong. Like, that's the other thing. He is wrong. Uh, the Socceroos were the first ones out the gate, created a video, and they've definitely performed at least as well, if not better, than we thought they were going to do. They've created their own bit of history. Like, mm-hmm. The German team has a bad manager at the moment. Yeah. And like he clearly had not managed his squad properly. He's playing players who haven't played enough football. He's playing players who've played too much football. It's nothing to do with the fact that they decided to make a stand. Uh, they just weren't very good at football at the moment, which yeah. is, I'm sure the data would have shown up if uh, Arsene had looked or had decided not to interpret it the way he did. So, all right. Yeah. In the red, Wenger. Had to be in the red, Arsene Wenger, this weekend. Also in the red is boxing generally, I guess. Jericho's boxing has a problem. Boxing has a number of problems, but... Uh, Fury against Chisora on Saturday night left me and perhaps many others wondering where the hell is boxing at? Because um, for the for the souls, the fifty six thousand odd souls, many was it in total? Fifty six thousand uh, seven hundred eighty nine. What I would call mugs in the crowd at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Saturday night because they're there to watch a fight that, if you look at the bookies odds beforehand, wasn't a fight. Tyson Fury's in his prime, perhaps at thirty four, which is kind of scary. Derek Chisora's thirty nine in a couple of months, and. This was a fight for a payday. Let's be perfectly honest about it, because it wasn't a it wasn't a fight that uh, put two titans at a similar level of their career up against each other. Um, Derek Chisora earned two point three million euros for this fight. 
that's why this fight happened. Um, it was a 13th professional loss for him as well. His record isn't good. If you if you look at if anyone watched the fight or you saw even photographs uh, afterwards, Chisora's right eye looks horrific for most of the fight, um, and the fact that it was only stopped in the tenth round via TKO for a, for a Tyson Fury win is perhaps the most concerning thing. But they, of course, as I said, fifty six thousand fans there. They wanted to put on a show, um, and like I was even during the fight itself, screenshotting some of the comments I was seeing from from boxing fans on Twitter. Uh, Chisora's corner needs to stop this fight. Only three rounds in, Fury's already trying not to hurt him. Stop the fight before Fury kills Chisora. Uh, walking body bag for Fury. Um, the ref must stop this Chisora v Fury fight or else I'm switching off my TV. It had that feel to it from round three. Now, as I said, this this fight went to round ten, um, which which is terrifying because there could have been serious, serious damage done to Derek Chisora. Uh, of course, he, he has to fight someone and Chisora was the, was the dummy who had to step in because Anthony Joshua hasn't signed any contracts. Uh, that fight doesn't appear to be any closer whatsoever to happening and I don't think it will happen at this point. Um, but like Tyson Fury retired in April, and he said, "Oh, I meant it." We know he didn't mean it at the time. He's never he's never meant it. No, he's never meant it when he said it. He says he's had four months at home with his kids and his dog uh, over the over the summer, and he's been relaxing and uh, kind of focused on this fight as well. There was a lovely, wholesome hashtag classy gesture video after the fight where himself and Chisora broke bread as is tradition for for friends, and that's the point. Chisora and Fury are mates. They get on very well, um, and that was quite apparent because the uppercuts were hurting Derek Chisora quite notably um, and there were points in the fight where you felt if Fury had really wanted to hurt Chisora there he would have there was that element of holding back yeah so look in, in fairness Fury says we weren't in there to do serious damage to each other this is from Jeff Powell who was ringside and sitting in the mail and uh, every, like everybody in the papers is saying pretty much the same thing you're saying this morning that it was a complete mismatch and it should never really have happened but uh, two million quid is what Chisora got I, I do think that like uh, the boxers know this is like the big thing in, in other sports is that you know you might get damaged you might suffer uh, long term permanent damage if you get a knock but in boxing the the plan at the start of the fight is to concuss your opponent so badly that they can't function anymore mm-hmm. that's the rules that's built in that's stitched in that's the aim of it and like when when you say boxing has a problem it, it's kind of always had that problem yeah and I'm not sure that like so let's let's say let's spin forward when it's Fury Alexander Usyk which Fury says will happen either in Saudi Arabia or in England either of them will be great venues so more than likely it's going to happen in Saudi Arabia right because that's where the money will come from and uh, it'll give us for the first time in a long time is it the first time in a long time one one person having everything or did did um, did Klitschko have all the belts at some point or uh, did he not I can't remember I feel I like the yeah. last time yeah um, but yeah, so all the belts, everything up, biggest fights, like one of the biggest fights in history. Yeah. Um, I th- and nobody, I, you know, everybody will tune in. Everybody will pay whatever it is. It's like 80, 80 bucks in America and 20, 20 quid here. And like this fight will be forgotten, I think. Yeah. But like, look, we, um, and we as sports journalists, and maybe we are shattered because the World Cup is on, but one of the lads in the office asked on Friday, Thursday or Friday, do you know... I think Colm asked us actually do you know that Fury and Chisora are fighting this weekend I was like no I hadn't heard a thing I hadn't seen uh, weigh-ins I hadn't seen any fighting talk from them I hadn't seen any social media activity because no one cares no one cares yeah. it was just one of these fights that's not completely under the radar normally I'd be watching these fights and, and enjoying the build-up no one cares about this fight well that, that, I think that's because everybody knows what the result is yeah and it's, it's like everybody, you know, everybody knows the result uh, of this fight because he's a tomato can this was supposed to be as you said 
the window for them to have a big fight and they didn't because they couldn't get the organisation done. And so this fight was, this window was open. Everybody makes a little bit of money and they move on. That's like... But she's always been the tomato can all his, all his career. And, and oh, now you know what tomato can is. Right? Well, there you go. But like, I mean, 56,000 tomato cans in the crowd as well who are paying to watch this. And they're the suckers. Now, unless it's Qatari uh, stadium numbers and that, there weren't that many people in the crowd, but I think there were. I mean, it, it just... It beggars belief. People, of course, I get the element of people are big Tyson Fury fans. They want to see him while he's still fighting. He announced he's retiring in April. They're like, oh, I don't have that many more opportunities to see him live in the flesh, fighting it out. But why would you bother watching a fight like this? Right. Just It deserves to be in the red box in generally, but the Fury Jazora fight particularly, Jerry, I think was... One that left a bad taste in the mouth. John Clavy says, Welcome to Boxing Change. He's always been a punching bag all his career. Bohemian29 says, Who paid the price for that pay per view on the boxing? Uh, was, was it pay per view? Was it? I think it was, yeah, yeah but okay. anyone to pay that is. Um, well, I think it's just keeping Tyson Fury busy in a situation where they know there's no risk. And Mark C says, For 2.3 million, let him suck it up. Right, who's in the Amber? Yeah, we're going with Amber next. And uh, last 16 so far, Jer. Um, now, this is going to sound harsh, and we're going to get to some positives in this because, uh, as we all know, the amber traffic light means we're about to go. We're about to go, Jerry. We're about to get positive. So I'm not going to leave this all negative. But the last 16 has been... Um, it's gone to plan so far in terms of results. That's the only negative I would say. Um, I'd like to take this chance to firmly apologise to, to Lionel Messi. Uh, I'm sure he wa- he's watching this morning. But um, I, I kind of wrote him off uh, during the group stages, I have to say. I said this Argentina team is not built around him anymore. These lads around him, like Alvarez or Fernandez, are coming, coming good. He's not the main man. I was totally wrong. And I hold my hands up this morning. I have to apologise because he is still the main man. And look, you might say, look at Shane, he's all reactive. One performance again for Messi and he's, he's back on board. Um, like, the Messi-Ronaldo discussion has to stop for me. Like, th- there is no comparison. And look, it's, it's apples and oranges anyway. They're two different types of footballers, as we all know. So we need to stop comparing them. But if, if Messi leads Argentina to this World Cup, uh, he's without doubt the greatest player, and it's—I know we said, Jerry, that we're kind of behind the whole Spain train, and this these young team, this young team with Gavi and Pedri and Luis Enrique is a really likable character. A lot of people would like to see Messi win the World Cup. It would kind of be a a little moment for him to pro- perhaps step back. I'd retire if I was him if I won this World Cup. Um, but that—that's kind of why I had it in amber. Is that Argentina beat Australia, France beat Poland, England beat Senegal. We've got all the the results that we expected to get. Yeah. But it means that we're going to have really, really good quarterfinals. Well, that's the alternative. I don't, you know, if you get any bad teams making a bit of a shock result at this stage, it leads to a bad quarterfinal, which can lead to a bad semi-final. Yeah. Which can sometimes lead to a one-sided final. So, yeah, I'm okay. 100%. I'm okay. You're taking it. You're accepting yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, so that's the other side of the coin of all the big teams winning, I guess. Um, the big positive for me at the weekend was Louis van Gaal. And sorry, this entire World Cup. Here's a video I think we have of the, the Dutch team coming back in they're all given face masks just look at the atmosphere they were getting abused Jerry online for this um, from some quarters why are they celebrating winning a last 16 match getting to a quarter final they got their own faces I was wondering uh, well, yeah, most they got their, their own faces, faces. Uh, but Louis van Gaal is about to pop in the screen with his, with his camera phone like your, like your uncle at every wedding I really wish they'd given van Gaal a face as well that would have been <laughs> Louis van Gaal's vibes Louis. Yeah, that's immaculate vibes from, uh, from Louis van Gaal there like Everything he's doing at the, at the minute, he's, he's one of football's last great characters, Jerry. 71, he had the prostate cancer battle uh, earlier this year. He only he kept, kind of kept it uh, quiet from his team during qualifying for the World Cup. Um, announced his retirement, of course, back in 2019. Then the Dutch had that horrific spell under Frank de Boer, and he was like, OK, I'll come back for one last World Cup and help you, help you lads out. 
and just as well he did because the bonding in this team anyone who gives out and people have given out about Van Hal for that for those images why are you why is your team celebrating why are you celebrating beating the USA in the last 16 match well why not it's creating an atmosphere around the team a bond they're going to go into this Argentina game rightly as underdogs in the quarter final but why can't they beat them on Friday and get to a World Cup semi-final and from then I mean anything can happen there was the, there was the, 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 um, the pictures the famous pictures in the press conference earlier this tournament where a young journalist novice journalist asked Van Hal uh, for a hug um, or said something positive about him he said he, I'm your biggest fan and Van Hal loved it you could see he was visibly quite emotional at the end of the press conference hugged him and again on Twitter going mad why is this journalist asking for a, for a hug with Van Hal so unprofessional first of all leave the kid alone and second of all he can do what he wants and third of all Van Hal's happy face made it all worthwhile uh, there's been a bit of criticism in the Dutch media yeah there has from side, from yeah, the, like, just wanna, you know, there's another side to that you're not really supposed to be asking for hugs press conferences I know kind of creates a bit of a, the wrong environment you're not being held to account you know yeah, that, you're but it was, not really there just to represent yourself you're there to represent the audience who <sighs> can't get in I, I, yeah, that's all just, there's, another, there's another viewpoint there you know it's just a lovely little moment <clears throat> I don't know what, what, what media uh, outlet he, that young lad was representing but I, for, for me I don't see the problem um, Listen, just, I wouldn't do it myself. Well, okay, you know, you know, I wouldn't do it good. myself. But good to establish that, but I thought it was a quite a, a wholesome baseline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marco van Basten, two great goals. The rest is something to cry about. As a football lover, I ask myself, what am I looking at? I don't know if I can cope with this much longer. That's in uh, Mary Hannigan's piece in the Irish Times today. Yeah, yeah like the, the Dutch style takes a bit of getting used to, um, and I'm sure for the Netherlands themselves that they're getting criticised. Bit like we criticise Stephen Kenny constantly in the Irish media Kenny FM even here are known for criticising the, the team every now and again but in the Dutch media they're being very harsh at the moment they're into the last eight of the World Cup All right. they're going to play Argentina but uh, World Cup last 16 no shocks that's why it was an amber but um, yes yeah, certainly Louis van Gaal giving me some could go, could go into the green could go right right it, what's in the green yeah we're leaning into the green now so uh, the club action I know we'll talk with Cal Milani later on this morning about uh, the club action generally but Moy Cullen for me Jer was the, the story of the, the weekend their, their first ever county championship win two years ago in Galway. Um, they didn't get the chance to play in the provincial that year. It was COVID. Um, so this was their first ever chance at winning a Connacht Senior Club Championship title against uh, Turtle Strand, the, uh, the Sligo champions. And it's been, it was a good weekend for, for uh, Mike Cullen because their minors won the county championship on Saturday as well. Um, it was an interesting matchup because Don uh, Conlon is the Mike Cullen manager and the manager for Turtle Strand was Don's former Roscommon teammate, Fergal O'Donnell. So it was a nice little mixture of two former county teammates with the Rossies. Uh, playing into a freezing, freezing breeze in the first half in Pierce Stadium in Salt Hill. Hardly a surprise when it's Pierce Stadium in Salt Hill that there was a freezing breeze. Um, and look, it was a big, big day for Turtle Strand as well because the first time back in the final in, in four decades for them. So a big moment, two teams that, that kind of hadn't been there and a bit of a novel pairing in the, in the Connacht Senior Club Championship title. Uh, and Peter Cook. There's not much to be said about Peter Cook. I think he scored 121 in the Connacht or in the Championship generally so far for... Mike Cullen this year so um, to date and he has been imperious uh, it wasn't in the Galway panel last year there was a bit of travelling I think or work uh, I know he works for an American company and, and works on their hours so he works strange hours Irish time he's based in Ireland but works for an American company on their hours uh, Keane O'Neill of course Galway selector under Porrick Joyce was up from Cork to watch this match of the weekend uh, three unbelievable points from player from Peter Cook in the second half they will be mad keen to have him back in the Galway like to think Galway got to an All-Ireland final against Kerry without the likes of Peter Cook and others, but Peter Cook specifically, for me, uh, having watched this this uh, Mike Cullen team closely, like I was at one of Mike Cullen's games in the Galway Championship uh, this season, a couple of months ago, back in Salt Hill, and they were brilliant. 
they have some serious players the likes of Paul Kelly and Desi Keneally as well they have a number of me- uh, members already of that uh, Galway panel under Port Joyce they play in the semi-finals in January the winners from Ulster so Kilku or Glen now in many people's eyes the winner of that Kilku Glen game is are going to win the All-Ireland uh, there is a small matter of Kilmacud Croaks what? Yeah, in many people's eyes what? I, sorry in my eyes I think, I think the winner of that game will win the All-Ireland um, I actually think Glen will win Ulster I'm putting myself out there and I think uh, Glenn will then beat Mike Cullen in the same is going to win the All-Ireland. you think so? Well. I, I wouldn't be... I, I'm never in my life going to back against Malachy O'Rourke and um, you know, he took over Glenn a couple of years ago and they had never won the Derry Senior Championship. Now they've won a couple. They're into an Ulster Club title against Kilku. Kilku have been less than their usual impressive best this year. That was the big story though. Mike Cullen from the weekend. I had to have to give a mention of my dad's home club Dunmore McHale's. The famous club of the Donlan dynasty in Galway. Michael Donlan and co, of course, Michael moved in 2005 to Salt Lake to pick up his All-Ireland club title. But Dunmore McHale's won the, all, uh, the, sorry, the Connacht Intermediate club title of the weekend against the Dominics from Roscommon. They have been excellent in the, uh, the Connacht Championship. Uh, and a small little village to win a, an All-Ireland Intermediate like that. Or sorry, a Connacht Intermediate. And they push on now. And, and two, you're two games away. Uh, I think it's Rathmore from, from Kerry or the odds-on favourites for the All-Ireland Intermediate at the minute. Uh, Cardiff, Bandy McInerney's club in Monaghan will play um, Galbally from Tyrone in the Ulster final next weekend. There's some big, big hitters left in the Intermediate Championship. I think uh, it was a team from Wexford won at the weekend okay. um, in, in, in the Leinster. So, Moy Cullen for me was the story of the weekend. You appear to have accidentally tuned into a, a broadcast from Shannon's side. Something, something's going on here. Someone, someone seized the airwaves there for it the last It was Moy Cullen. I, just, I didn't okay. want Moy Cullen yeah, not yeah. to get the credit. Grant, so yeah, they deserve yeah. to be in the green. I see what you did. You pivoted from a great story for Galway football into like a, a potted history of, of Monaghan great yeah okay <laughs> Dunmore sorry I, I wanted to mention Mike Cullen just to get to Dunmore McHale's well, that was my point um, Dunloy beat Slotnead and Hurling so they're up against St, um, St. Thomas's and um, the other semi-final is obviously going to be uh, the one that everybody wants to see the mm. replay of, of last year uh, Ballyhale and Ballygunner and um, uh, Ballyhale were great in patches against yeah. Kilmacud and Kilmacud were very good and Ran them close. We'll talk a bit more about that a little, little bit later on. Uh, last one in green for now. Yeah, we're going to move on to the green uh, proper. Sinead Diver. Um, what can you say about Sinead Diver? Oh, except for the fact that we only wish she was racing in Irish colours still. Um, 45 years of age at the minute. Broke the record for the fastest time run by an Irish woman in a marathon at the weekend. Also broke the Australian women's marathon record by more than one minute in Valencia. So a time of two hours, 21 minutes and 34 seconds. For anyone, watch, anyone watching who's done a marathon, and I really only threw this in, Jer, uh, just to, again, bring up the fact that I have run a marathon. So um, in case you're wondering why this is in green, it's, it's in green for my ego. Um, she still represents Australia. She moved to Australia t- uh, more than 20 years ago. Born in Mayo, she's a Belmullet woman originally. Uh, 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, finished 10th for the Aussies. Um, now, she's still quite young to the sport. She only took up marathon running 12 years ago when she was 33 but she has fairly come on. Now, there, of course, is, are reasons why someone can, can be so good at the age of 45 in marathon running. There's less strain on your body. So she took it up quite late. So I guess that the pounding on the pavement hasn't been as constant or as uh, regular when she was younger. So she's, she's able to probably do it for, uh, for, for now. She spoke, um, she had a disappointment in, in March, was unable to compete the race. But she said, I've wanted this for so long, this being the record. I wasn't sure if I was good enough to get it. I've had a few goes at it now. This was my third crack at it. And every time I line up, it takes a lot. Things have to really fall in place uh, for something like this to happen. Sorry, to beat the Australian re- record by over a minute, 
might not seem like a lot given you're running for two hours 21 but that is quite significant um, and the fact that she's beaten Katrina McKiernan's uh, Amsterdam 98 record for fastest marathon by an Irish woman as well um, is, is quite incredible so props to Sinead Diver deserves to be in the green and um, we'll still claim her as our own even though can, we, can, we, can we claim her is that not like 100% uh, can we I mean she only moved to Australia what 20 years ago 20 years ago yeah yeah but she was 25 I mean no I, I mean I, I'm sure that she has dual nationality but from a like you know uh, what what great for her what credits do you get I mean I don't know maybe you obviously want to inspire but what roads did you run when she was younger around Bill Mullet that's the question yeah they, they, I, I, I'm not gonna, it's great for Bill Mullet but like is it is it not like a story of lost something to Irish athletics is there not something there where we're like oh it's great we're all great we're all well actually is it is it I don't know yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. It's like watching the. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's not quite like watching the Aussie rules players do well in Australia because they were more recently departed. Well, if they if they went and like if we cared about the international rules and they came back and they played for Australia and they killed us, you'd be like, well, that was maybe should we should we have lost that? You know? Yeah, you uh, can you can watch it and and still enjoy it because she is Irish. She is Irish. I'm not saying you don't enjoy it. Well, is it like Billy Walsh? We're is, not we claiming her. Like you know, we didn't. We've done nothing. Haven't helped her in this. Have not been a, an important part in her success. Do, do we have to be, though, to, to take some satisfaction from an Irish athlete? I'm saying satisfaction and claim, and they're different. Like, yeah, I'd say, I'd, you know, I, it's a very interesting, it's, a, it's a, such an unusual case, and the results are so spectacular. Um, mm. You know, I mean, maybe there's a lesson there for late bloomers and other sports and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and look, the weather in Australia, I'm sure, helped her decision, A, to go down there in the first place, and B, uh, your training ha- has to be quite... We're, we're all obsessed about the weather. Well, we are, a little, little bit, but... We couldn't possibly have done this in, in rainy, wet, cold, oh. grey... Maybe that's what made her. Man. Maybe that's what made her, Jerry. That's why we created this. It's not this too late for you, Shane. You're roughly the same age she was when she went down. Well, 29, You're always yeah. banging on about her great yards and marathon runner. Go on, go and do your two hours, 20 minutes, or... Two hours, five minutes, whatever the Irish record is for the men. <laughs> right, it's 8 o'clock. OTV AM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. That was this week's edition of the Gillette Labs Performance Rankings. OTV AM's Performance Rankings with Gillette. It's four minutes past eight. You're very welcome along to OTV AM. Uh, I'm delighted to say we've got Nadim Manua with us to talk about the England football team and their performance so far. Nadim, good morning to you. How are you getting on? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um... What was your what was your roller coaster of emotions like during the game last night? <laughs> um, it's not really like that from a roller coaster standpoint because I kind of have to work it, so it pays to just pay attention to what's happening. So I, had a, I was in a very nice spot in the stadium, could see the see the all twenty two, and yeah, it was um, it was interesting to see the way they tactically went for it. Wasn't really that good at the start, then they made a couple of tweaks, and before you know it, you know the timing of that second goal was really the the crucial part. And then Senegal tried to match up with them in the second half uh, in terms of their formation. But again, that third goal basically just put the nail, final nail in the coffin. But they were they were good. And the only high point I had really, like a really high point, is because I'm friends with Jordan Henderson. So to see my friend score in the World Cup kind of made me go a little bit unprofessional. <laughs> but, but aside from that, it was um, it was overall good good performance. And as I watch this England team, you sort of, they give off a feeling like they've been here before. And I think that's something which we, well, with anyone who's been watching for most of their life, haven't really seen, regardless of the talent they've had in the past. I think with this group of players, they just have a certain sense of confidence, understanding about sort of getting through the rounds, which I find really impressive. It's really interesting you talk, you talk about that, um, the opening, and you, you said a, a tactical change. What was the change that was made? Because in that first half an hour, it didn't look like they were in a flow state. Yeah, 
Um, so for, for me personally, and I, I don't have inside information, but the way I was looking at the game, I think they sp- had spent a lot of time with the ball moving around at the back. And I looked at the two uh, forwards in Foden and Saka, and I wasn't really seeing them really try and stretch the game in behind. So everything was essentially in front of the Senegalese. And as a consequence, like football, you know, it's never easy, but it's easier when everything's in front of you. So it seemed like there needed to be some sort of intent, at least, to try and force the opposition back. And I think there was a point probably 25, 30 minutes in, I think there might have been a pause in play. And then I watched something as Jordan Henderson um, received the ball and he wanted to spin a ball down the channel to Saka and he didn't go. So Jordan played it off and then he was berating him for 10, 15 seconds saying, you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to go. And then from that point, there was a more of an injection in terms of energy, desire, as we could see from those two goals, which they scored, where people were really testing the line, playing on the shoulder, trying to inject tempo with the ball, without the ball. And that sort of speed makes it very hard for the opposition. And I think, um, you know, in terms of organizational structure, when you're defending, you know, everybody is when you are facing like away from your own goal. But that point when you're running back towards it, you don't know where anybody is and you're just hoping that people are in the right spot. And for England, that injection of energy from the likes of Foden, you know, from Bellingham, and even the fact that, you know, you've got the two number eights setting each other up. I think that's when they are very, very dangerous. And I think if Gareth Southgate was the one who recognised that, then fair play to him, because from that point, especially in the second half, they were more aggressive with their press, more aggressive trying to run in behind again. And it makes for a very uncomfortable game for the opposition. Well, that's really interesting, right? Because um, one of the criticisms of Southgate pre-tournament was, oh, he's not that great on the sideline. He's brilliant around the camp. He's He's got the best out of this group of players. He sets them up brilliantly. But in matches, he's being outdone by his rivals. And um, maybe that's not the case anymore. Because like, it's not like managers can't change and evolve and get better. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that's exactly right. I think, you know, no manager is essentially perfect because you still need the players to go out there and basically instill your beliefs anyway. But I think if he did see something, then fair play to him because it was lacking that point because they had good possession. But like, what's the point in possession if you don't have territory? And then some of those other bits which he tried to do then in terms of stretching the game, they try and maybe play some balls a little bit longer. But the best thing about those is that even if they didn't win them, you'd have people coming from behind. And now you're going to be building an attack from the opposition's half instead of just your own. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it wasn't the best version of Senegal that we saw yesterday. But some of that, in part, was to do with the way that England played. And Senegal obviously have a couple of players missing, but I would have fancied England anyway. But then once I start seeing them be more dynamic, be more on the front foot, you know, sort of delivering a level of energy into the game, which, um, you know, makes it always hard to play against them. Then I thought they're fair dues. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't a perfect performance. There were one or two sort of errors defensively. But for those people, you know, get very down on England, like, each team that's at this World Cup who's doing well has shown their flaws at some point. So to say for anybody that says it's definitely going to go this way, definitely going to go that way, you know, it feels like that's more emotional as opposed to logical from seeing the way that the tournament's gone so far. Nidham, is Jordan Henderson's importance to this team, to this squad, underrated? Um, to, from which perspective? Well, he seems to be... From, when he scored the goal last night, it's, everyone's like, put some credit on this man's name. And like, I'm sure he's important as a, as a squad member and an experienced person in the squad, but you don't hear his name mentioned too often as one of these really important key cogs in the Southgate machine. Yeah, you are right with that. And I think um, I think it's because some people probably see him as more as like a six, but knowing Jordan, he actually wants to play the eight because he can be more involved in the game. And he can play as a six, but he's an eight. So when most people see his name on a team sheet, they believe that it's going to be more defensive, but Jordan can defend, but he wants to go forward. He wants to make runs in behind. He wants to go on overlaps. He wants to try and get the ball in the half space and drive and be looking to try and find penetrating passes and so on. So I think some people maybe do underestimate him, but you know, when you look at it for what it is, he's the captain of Liverpool. He's, he's clearly not the worst player in the world, you know, but as again, some people don't fancy him and that, you know, that's, that's fair enough. They're entitled to their own opinion, but 
I think there's a good dynamic there between say himself and Bellingham because they do spread they spread the field really well. They're all they stay patient. They come and link the play when they need to. But then as soon as there's a chance to really go and bomb forward, I think off they go. And I think Jordan with that as well is one of the best pressers I think that England have. And when you see him start going, other people go with him. And I think some of that comes with his big game understanding the fact that he's played for the club like Liverpool and, and led them to great success. So yeah, I think in some ways you're probably right. Maybe he's a, he's, he's a, um, maybe his, his performances and his, and what he does for England is underrated. But then ultimately, you know, it's Gareth Southgate that picks the team and he rates him because he's playing him. So I think that's probably the biggest sort of show of support that you need as opposed to people from the outside really understanding what he does. I don't know if he, before the tournament started, if he was in everybody's, um, uh, here's my pick for who Southgate is going to pick. Uh, at what mm. point over the course of the tournament has he now become undroppable? What, like, when did he get in the team for you? I, you know, obviously, notwithstanding the fact that he's your mate, right? But if you were putting yourself in Southgate's head, when did it, when did Southgate go? Yeah, he's he's definitely the team. Because I was a little bit surprised at the team that got picked. I kind of thought there was a possibility he might go back to three central defenders. I hoped he wouldn't, but I thought he might because we're getting to that stage of the tournament now where he has used that in the past. It's been effective. Managers like doing what has won them stuff in the past. <laughs> You know, that's so interesting because whenever, say, a lot of people are and they'll start speaking about England, there's always this thing hanging over the head about a three at the back, three at the back. But like England, they're not, they're not, not really concerned about that, it seems like. You know, I think they prefer the balance in the midfield of having three guys in there and with the three forwards. So it's more formation, which we see domestically. And I can't personally see them going into that unless they absolutely have to. And if they absolutely had to, maybe it's because you'd be playing against two number nines. But most of the teams that play this World Cup, they don't really do it that way. And I think the four at the back, it, it, it makes sense. You've got people who can play it very, very well, and they are currently playing it very well. And they have the added security of a Declan Rice in there as well, who really understands his responsibility within the team. So I think from back to your original question with Jordan, I think against the USA, England overall, they were a little bit laboured in terms of how they were playing. I think there was an ebb and flow to that game, which probably made a few people uncomfortable because there were times when USA were very much on top and times, you know, when England were on top and people expected them to stay on top, but that's not the case. And, you know, you, there's lots of reasons why. But then I thought the game changed a little bit when he came on to play more alongside Rice because he sort of had a better game understanding of, say, that particular moment. Some people said it was negative, but I think it helped in terms of getting a stranglehold in the midfield. So I think, obviously, Gareth Southgate knows what he was all about anyway. But from when he brought him on and he could see the sort of way that he could manage the moments a bit and to sort of understand what was required in the game. Like if you bring in someone on like that and you can tell them what you want them to do, you know, he's going to do it to a T. He's going to do it well, in my opinion. So I think maybe that was the point there. And now as you look at this midfield, you know, they, they're good. Like Bellingham does his thing. Jordan Henderson does his thing. Declan Rice does his thing. And they've got the likes of Calvin Phillips on the bench and for Jordan's talk from a personal standpoint. You know, I know he's greatly disappointed to not be getting enough game time at the Euros last year because he believes that he should have been or, or not should have been, believes that he could have been playing. So I think uh, now that he's out there, you know, he's, he's, he wants to make the most of this because, you know, it's a World Cup. You never know when your next, say, game's going to be, let alone your next um, international match whatsoever. So he's out there. He's wanting to make an impact. And, you know, he'd absolutely love, like the rest of uh, the nation would, to be lifting up a World Cup trophy if it's going to be there for them or at least just be a ch have a chance in a World Cup final to be doing it. And it's one step at a time for England as opposed to some of the English media, I could say. Uh, Nedham, speaking of the English media, so well, Phil Foden after the match, speaking of Jude Bellingham, said he's going to be the best midfielder in the world for sure. Reading Jimmy Carragher in the Telegraph this morning, he says Jude Bellingham is exploding like Gaza did at Italian 90. There's comparisons to Wayne Rooney at Euro 2004. Like English media certainly keeping his feet on the ground, but um, does, that, does that concern you like for a 19-year-old having to listen to, to these kind of headlines? Um, 
I don't think it concerns me as much anymore because I think some of these really good young talents now, I think they see the game in a slightly different way and they just, just enjoy it. But they're really, really good professionals because some of the sort of the people that came before them who maybe have inspired them, like their foundations are on being great professionals, not just great players. So for someone like Jude Bellingham, by all accounts, it seems like he's a really, really nice guy. seems like he really just enjoys the football, wants to play. You know, in the same way I hear the same stories about like Phil Foden and the like. So people can hype them up all they want. But for them, the reality is the stuff which goes on on the field. And these guys who are very, very well trusted by their teammates, trusted by their managers. And it's because, not just because they play well, but because they want to be doing everything they can to make themselves better on a day-to-day basis. Same case for someone like Erling Haaland. You know, they have such great ambitions, but they work at it as opposed to just listening to what everyone else is saying. So I don't worry too much from that. And I think some of the stuff that they say, I don't know, you, you can say how good it is and that's fantastic. But realistically, he's going to change the way he plays. Probably not. It's good to have something to have an exciting prospect in your side. It's good to have lots of exciting young players in your side. But you know, football's a very, very tough game, and to do it year in year out is going to be the key. But he has shown great potential for that. And if things fall his way and he stays healthy, I'm sure he will be great. But for him, he'll probably define himself as great based on how successful he is and can he achieve his potential, as opposed to people saying that you know he's just going to be this guy or that guy. Because he's only 19, it's possible that his game is going to change and evolve. It's likely his game is going to change and evolve. Is there a possibility that he ends up as a more a higher up the pitch player? Like his 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 skill set is so unique, yeah. That you'd love to have him slightly further up to be able to damage teams, while at the same time you wanted to be on the ball as early and as often in every move as possible. So you know, obviously, you want to clone him and have him play eight and maybe even a ten. I'd love to see him playing a ten in in some situations. Yeah, so Phil Foden thinks that he's be- Phil Foden thinks that his personal best position is number ten. Like that's Phil Foden, not not Jude Bellingham. So I think Phil's trying to separate himself, and Phil's trying to say he's more of an attacker. <laughs> Whereas for me, Bellingham, like I think he is like a really he's he's like a he's a box to box midfielder as such, um, which is something we don't really talk about too much these days because you tend to put someone higher or someone lower and so on. But he can. He can do it all. And for some reason, that now feels really unique that somebody can do that instead of just being a sole specialist in one field. But I think maybe he'll go further forward. But the fact is, I think from the position he plays now, he has a license to go forward. And when the, when the moment is there and when the moment is right, but then also he can get the ball from deep or he can make the passes, but then he can also drive with the ball. And when people can do that, it's like it's people's worst nightmare, really, because some of those midfield matchups they don't have. They won't be as strong as him. They won't be as technically gifted as him. They won't be as quick as him. So if he gets that, gets the game by the scruff of neck and goals, kind of like he did in the second goal yesterday, I think it's going to be a really tough spot. But I'd always prefer him to be coming from sort of behind some of the attacks as opposed to being so far ahead of it and having to be on the half turn. Because then if he ends up in the wrong sort of game or playing for the wrong sort of team, he might go a lot, go through long periods in a match where he never gets the touch of the ball. And I think at that point, you're probably wasting his potential, I'd say. As I got to the point, Nathan, where Bellingham is so important to England that if you're Didier Deschamps, you you take him out of the match. You, like you, you literally target Jude Bellingham because he's that important. And if you can do that, then then you beat England. Um, I don't think they, I don't think they're quite there yet. I don't think they're quite there yet. And I, the reason I say that is, especially from a French perspective, like you know they are world champions and tactically they can be very very good. But that doesn't. But I wouldn't think that they'd want to make a huge adjustment to affect the way that the opposition player as opposed mm. to focus on what they're doing themselves. And as I look at their team, I can't see Rabiot, I can't see Griezmann really sort of trying to go for that, for that matchup, for that matchup. So I don't know. You, I think is it, is it too many that you end up being left with, but if you're following him around, then you're missing the point because there'll be other people who fall into the space, especially like 
somebody like a Harry Kane who, you know, prefers to drop off that little bit. Well, if he drops off there and you've got too uh, many following um, Jude Bellingham around, then what are you going to do with Harry Kane? So I think tactically, you can't over-reg it. I think maybe try and stop the supply line to him by maybe forcing England to go out wide sooner or to try and keep England passing the ball side to side at the back. But yeah, I think you're aware of his strengths, but I think sometimes it's just... It's not really that common these days to think you have to stop one individual. Like the England are potentially thinking, well, fans are t- potentially thinking, you know, the key to the game is to try and stop Mbappe. But then like the bigger point is Mbappe's been really good at this tournament because he's had Hernandez supporting him. Hernandez has been the guy who's been going on some of those overlaps and then providing, say, one-twos and creativity from that standpoint. So you can try and focus on Mbappe. But the next thing is a 2v1. And then they have other players on the field who are capable of scoring, like lest we forget now. You know, they've got France's all-time top goal scorer playing up front. So he seems like somebody you should probably keep your eye on as well. So I think overall, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd appreciate what the individuals do. But still, you just try and just look at it from a sort of wider team perspective because any one person could make a difference. But if you put all your eggs in that basket, I think someone else will punish you. Apart from that sense of calm that the England team are exuding, is there other aspects to what you've seen, even from France, that's given you some confidence out of this game? Confidence in England's favour? yeah. Um, I so I'm I'm quite neutral. Though. I think it's, I think the game feels like a toss up to me, and the reason I say that is because as I've watched France, you know they've they've shown good spells where they've controlled the game, they've moved the ball well, but then they've also showed spells where they've offered real opportunity to the opposition, as was the case yesterday in the first half against Poland, where Poland probably think that they should have scored, and if they do score, you know the game has a whole different context to it. I think their strengths are more in attack as opposed to defense, because say for example, Kylian Mbappe is an incredible player, but you're very rarely going to see him pressing with any level of desire whatsoever. So you get the chance to potentially start some attacks down that side. But then the, the sad thing is then if they're more open, they're more set to sort of commit you on the break. But I think it's a game between, um, between two imperfect sides because, you know, Upper Meccano is, is, is a good player. He's not like the best thing that's ever been seen. And it's the same all across the field for both sides. And you know that they, they do have mistakes in them from the front to the back. So ultimately it's like, it's, it's a really good matchup. It's going to be really, really intriguing. I think both teams will want to have the ball and so on. And France may, for some, for the English, feel more dangerous, but that's because they're quite pessimistic overall. But the fact is, France, for as much as they've done and how well they've played, they're still just the same as everybody else. In the fact, they've won games, but they've shown that they do have some weaknesses and they can't control games for 90 minutes. And the England side might be the toughest test that they've faced, that they've faced so far. So how do you deal with it when this brand of English football could be thrown at them? And it's not to say England will definitely win because I don't think any side is definitely going to win this game. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But it's a really, really intriguing tie. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure there'll be lots of people who don't like England who will be supporting France. But then for all those people, I think, well, do you like Mbappe as well? And for some people, they don't. So, yeah, I don't know what people are going to be supporting. So we'll have to see. The um, the 10 or 15 minutes after Denmark scored as well, there was just a period where France looked a little bit ragged and there was loads of chances being created. So you can see how there is room for England to get into the game. Uh, you mentioned um, Mbappe and the potential impact that he might have and Hernandez. A lot's going to fall on the English defence. Harry Maguire has so far been good and definitely better than the Harry Maguire that we see from Manchester United. Have you any theories about why he plays better for England than Man United at the moment? Um, I think overall it's just a, it's probably just a better atmosphere for him. I think when you look at the English crowd, you know, they have overall a positive experience when they see when they see him out there. I think in playing with John Stones, they're probably very like minded in the way that they play and then adding a Jordan Pickford again, who you know, they're they're all on the same sort of page. And then he's got the familiarity familiarity of Luke Shaw on the left hand side. And I don't think 
it's it's fair to say England play completely different to the way Man United play. But it's just a different spot. And then also, you know that Gareth Southgate, Southgate really trusts him. And I think there's a lot to be said for that sort of mental thing within football when you know you're in a good spot, you know you're not under pressure, you know that you're being trusted to go and do something. And when it's for England, it's doing something on, on you know on, on the world stage. You're being trusted to go and play at a World Cup. So that what more of a pat on the back could you need as opposed to somebody sort of potentially saying, well, maybe you need to leave this United side. Maybe you shouldn't be here. You're not playing well enough. We're going to be taking you in. You're going to, we're going to be putting you in. We're going to be taking you out and so on. I think he has like a sense of continuity when he meets up with England. And that goes a long way for him. And people can say, you know, ultimately, yeah, he should do better than to sort of have to have confidence that way. But that's the way that most players, if not all players are. You play your best football when you are very, very confident and you feel trusted when you feel trusted out there. And for those who don't necessarily have that, it's it's very tough to continue to play well when there's sort of doubt over you. And fair play to him because he has done well, very well for England. I think although he made a couple of mistakes yesterday, but overall he's been very solid. And I think him and John Stones are, you know, they've they've been fantastic for England overall. And I hope they continue to do that. And if England lose, I don't want it to be down to a Harry Maguire mistake because all the naysayers are just waiting for that one mistake which costs them, which will then prove the point that he shouldn't be there. But I don't think England would be in the same position if it was someone else that's playing through these last few games. There are moments where you're like, where he's on the ball and you're thinking, Jesus, anything could happen here. This could go south very quickly. And, and like, yeah. I don't know, would you have had Conor Cody or Eric Dyer maybe in, in that defence ahead of him at the start of the World Cup? But it's just one of those things where, as you say, you're at times waiting for disaster to happen. Yeah, it's because you've seen it, because you've seen him make mistakes before. When he gets the ball and it's a high stakes moment, you're thinking it's going to happen again. But defensively, you know, he put, he's, he's good. And I think my only thing with him, and this has been the case for like a few years, is just at times he just takes a few too many touches when he's in possession mm. and he can sort of be led into a trap or led into a problem. And he's good on the ball. But the way for me, the defending is you don't have to show that all the time. At some points, you know, it's about percentages and to mention a guy. So, Van Dijk hasn't had the best of seasons, but one thing which I really like about him and the way he does it for Liverpool is that, you know, he'll move the ball around the back a few times, but then he's not shy of just playing percentage football. You'll play a ball down the channel, you try and play a diagonal, or if there's a bit of pressure, he'll literally send it into Rose Ed, and it sort of just dispels this doubt that some people might have in him when he's on the ball and so on, because you don't expect him to lose it. He won't overplay. Whereas I think at times Harry will think about, not he doesn't think it's overplaying at the time, but it it ends up being that way because the more touches you take, the more you sort of play into the opposition's hands because they start making adjustments based on where you're going. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, he's got some clips of him doing particularly badly. So now people just expect it to happen again. But the way football is, maybe that was his bad spell and maybe he's in a different moment now and he's learned from those mistakes because ultimately that's the whole point of uh, football, isn't it? To learn from the mistakes you make and make yourself better. Like He's only 90 minutes away now, Southgate, from another semi-final of the major tournament. Like... Do we have to accept now that he's one of England's greatest managers of all time? Yeah, well, yeah. And the thing is, I don't even accept it. I, like, I, I shout it because I've always found with um with a lot of people who watch England, like, I don't know, I don't know what they want. Like, it feels really, really strange for a nation that hasn't really had that much success on the international stage and has had more disappointment than anything else. It just feels weird when they'll be so critical of somebody who, you know, has taken them in across two tournaments into a semi and to a final. And yeah, I think even in the the first game of the Euros, I think they said that's the first time England have ever won their opening game of the Euros. You know, wow. So things have been really bad then. But I think the thing here, I don't know if it's to do with club football, but people are like obsessing about style of play, style of play, style of play. And I think when it gets like that, it gets a bit weird because I think after the USA, after the USA game, I had people 
saying to me that, you know, I know they made it to the semi-final of the Euros. I know they made it to the final of the, this, but, you know, I just want to be entertained. And it felt like a really sort of like privileged club football type fan because I thought like, what are we talking about? And according to that logic, if England managed to get to the final and say they played, I don't know, six at the back and they won, then that means they'd be miserable, even though he would have essentially delivered something which we've not, England haven't seen since the 60s. So... I don't know. I think he's, I think he's done a very good job. I think he's brought, created a good group of players who seem to enjoy playing with each other, who seem to enjoy representing the national team. And I know for a fact that hasn't always been the case. So fair play to them, fair play to them for the way they sort of interact with the, um, with the nation and their fans and so on. So I've got no, I've got no issues with Gareth Southgate. So I think he's very, very consequential. And I think he's brought hope from English football. And this is even in a time when you look at times people gone by like the Roonies and the Rio Ferdinands and the like. This team has objectively done better and have done better consistently. And in these moments, they, you kind of have a belief in the back of your head that they're going to be fine. So I think that's a big change to get. So I need to give, I, des- I think he deserves a ton of credit and some people won't be happy. And I think whether he wins the World Cup or goes out in this next round, I think some people still want him to leave anyway. And that's a shame. But if he does leave, I think he leaves with his head held high because he's done a great job. That is the key point, isn't it? That actually the team is performing better than it ever has done because he has got them all playing together. And maybe it's interesting that their best player isn't playing for one of those clubs that has a traditional rivalry with another title rival. That Sorry, Harry Kane I'm talking about, as opposed to the other best players who have obviously emerged since. But the talisman and the leader isn't the Manchester United captain or the Chelsea captain, and they're not winning titles all the time. And the cliques aren't there. I don't know if the cliques were that important or whatever, but you look at what happened in uh, Belgium, for example, where their golden generation reached a semi-final which maybe is about as good as it could get but it does seem as if factions within the dressing room at international level are massively important and understanding that uh, you can't do anything if those factions exist seems to be one of the things that Southgate got right very early on. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that and these factions, they're so strange like even for myself, so when I played England under 21s, there's like a north-south divide but then there were like different club divides as well. I think speaking um, in terms of how the national team was perceived like the, the, as you mentioned, the rivalries between like United and Liverpool, so on and so forth, like those things were real. So when they met up with England, you know, they sort of carried that baggage with them. Whereas this group of players, because they've kept them together for so long and they've done things beyond just like playing football, I think they all get each other and they look forward to playing with each other. And that's such a difference compared to what it was. And it seemed really stupid. But then think of, say, other teams who had the potential to do well, who've fallen off, who failed in a particular moment. You're talking about like French teams in times gone by where there's infighting. You know, you saw all the stuff around the Belgian team with him fighting with too old or now we're not too old and so on and so forth. Whereas for England, I think they get the messaging right. I think they kind of set the tone and the culture from the get-go. And the fact that, say, people, one of the people who gets praised the most is a Conor Cody doesn't really play at all for England. You know, that's a positive environment for them to be in overall. And I think if you're a part of it, you know what they're trying to achieve and they're all trying to achieve it together. Even uh, the radio interview, I think, with Phil Foden yesterday, and he was talking about how he understands that, you know, the key thing here is to be a part of the squad. And if you don't, if you're not starting, you need to make sure you're ready to come on and make a difference. You know, there'll be other nations and other times in England's history where somebody's on the bench is just going to sulk and say, well, why, why am I here if I'm not going to play? Whereas for them, you know, they want to win it together. They want to do it for each other, do it for the staff and do it for the nation who've supported them overall pretty well across the years that Southgate's been there. Nathan, great stuff. Thanks a million. How are you finding the tournament from, uh, like, what's it actually like? Yes, I've, to be honest, I've had an incredible time. I think to be able to be somewhere in the world and see fans from every corner of the globe come here with a sense of excitement to sort of 
watch their teams play, to watch some of the best players in the world play. The stadiums are incredible and everything's accessible. Like every day I'm excited to go and try and watch a game. And that's a, it's a very unique spot to be in because I don't think we'll have a feeling like this again where everything feels so accessible because in four years time, you might have to fly eight hours if you want to get to another game. Yeah, it's going to be different. This is definitely a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, great to have you with us. Thanks a million for making the time for us. Cheers. Cheers, thank you. It's uh, Nelly Manua there, giving us a real insight into what's going on with England at the moment. Uh, if you've got a view, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can um, use the hashtag OTBAM on Twitter. You can tweet us at off the ball am. I'd always wondered why Bellingham wore the number 20, 22 jersey. I was reading in the papers this morning that a coach, a former coach of his, explained to him in training one day that he could play quite comfortably the number four role the number eight role and the number ten role so we added those numbers together and made 22 right which is nice Like, and he can play any of those roles also a comment from uh, well John Duggan was tweeting after the match saying wishing Harry Kane in England well still wants Brazil to win the tournament got a reply from someone Eamon on Twitter I don't get Irish fans of Premier League teams who really don't want the players they support week in week out not to win at all surely we've moved on at this stage we've done from what though we've done from like this being level a sports maturity, fan. Yeah, yeah. This is what sport is about. I do not want England to win the World What's Cup. What's your local GA club? Monon Harps. And who are your nearest rivals? Probably Scotstown, I suppose. And do you want them to win? No. Do you want them to lose every game possible? 100%. Yeah, that's, that's just life. That's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, I, I, I'm really desperate for my neighbours to win. What? I said nobody ever. <laughs> and Harps and Scotstown don't have the history that Ireland and England have, so... Um, it's probably worse. It's probably it's probably worse, yeah, yeah, in some in some degrees. But no, I just don't get it at all. I, I really like this England team, but do I want them to win? Absolutely not. I'll have a French jersey on if I have one on, uh, on Saturday. No doubt. Does that make me immature? Don't really care. Just makes me a sports fan, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, Colm's obviously pointing out that they retired uh, G. Bangham's jersey at Birmingham City. And there was minor controversy at the time. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And then after he made his England debut, they're like, oh, that was a good idea. But like, in fairness, you know. I mean, Hindsight's twenty twenty, but now I thought it was ridiculous at the time. But now I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I still think it's a little bit ridiculous because <laughs> he was so young at the time. He was unproven. What was he? Seventeen, sixteen. I mean, yeah, it was a bit early. It was a bit soon. If they wanted to retire it now, in hindsight, that he's lit up a World Cup so far, I'd understand to some degree. But nah, um, no, I'm I'm, I'm all, all aboard the Jude Bellingham train. Can't believe he's only nineteen. Well, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do if you're if you're watching this in your city or your Liverpool? Are you United or you're Chelsea? Well, you pound straight away. You do, don't yeah, you? Yeah. This like, price is going to be ab- like abnormally huge because he's had a World Cup like he's had, but you still got to pay it, don't you? If you have the money, you pay it. I mean, if United have the money, they should be they should be tracking down Bellingham. Yeah, but it, <laughs> that auction could just explode. Mm. It, well, he was. Didn't he go for a walk? He went for a walk with Trent Alexander-Arnold the other day from oh, the yeah. camp and, and, uh, and uh, everyone was like oh he's gone well, I mean if Trent's not trying to sign him then you know something <laughs> yeah. somewhere has gone wrong but have like you, if, if they're all not trying to do it yeah he's going to walk with Phil Foden tomorrow and the same rumours will start with City I mean yeah like City can easily afford it because they could they could sell Haaland and they, they have the relationship with Dortmund already so there's that in as well um, I think he will come back to England it's just a matter of when uh, but yeah any club would be mad not to have him right uh, the Leopardstown Christmas Festival takes place from December 26th to the 29th. A great day out for sports fans, socialites and thrill seekers alike. Every day this week we have two hospitality places for the Leopardstown Pavilion to give away. You get a reserve table, lunch, chat and tips from top tipsters and much more. To enter, comment with a thumbs up emoji on our main Twitter page, add off the ball, and you're automatically in the hat. Remember to ensure that your DMs are open because that's how we contact you to let you know you've won. The Leopardstown Christmas Festival from December 26th to the 29th Tickets from €35 are available at leopardstown.com. Up next, sports pages. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. (laughs) 
I think he's a total spoofer. Why should you be a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. Uh, right, where do you want to start with the sports pages this morning? I might start with the front of the Irish Times, actually. There's an interesting story here. Sports participation hindered by school uniform policies. Do you have a school uniform? We did, yeah. Yeah. Both secondary and primary. Uh, all boys? All boys for both. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't do you any harm, did it? No harm. Just, you know. I just couldn't talk to girls for the first um, 30 years number of your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was a problem, but. I mean, you know. Yeah. Didn't I got there at the end. Didn't do you any harm? It did. It did. It left you traumatised and insecure and, you know, yeah. not a full human being. Exactly. All yeah. those people who are like, oh, no, it was grand. I'm like, are you sure? You seem to eat your potatoes with your thumb, mister. I'm not sure, not sure you're as grand as you think. Is that a thing? Uh, so this is a... Sorry. I'm, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> <carried> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Changes to strict, inflexible school uniform policies which inhibit greater physical activity, especially among girls and young women, are recommended in a new report to the government. Uh, in Italy, they decided that uh, single-sex schools was bad and they just decided, next intake, mm-hmm. no more single-sex schools. Yeah, fair. That was it. Overnight, they decided. And the world did not fall apart. We could do this if we wanted to. We could definitely do that. And also, you could get rid of uniforms. Mm. Like, oh, it's really easy because, you know, what are the kids going to wear? Let the kids decide. Let them wear whatever they want. Yeah. It doesn't matter so long as they're wearing something. Just let them wear what they want. You'd come back in sweating, though. You know them trousers, those grey trousers? You'd like. come in sweating. You'd be stinking to high heavens. Yeah. <laughs> the, the windows wouldn't be open. Grim. The, 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 they would be sweating. The windows would be sweating with the condensation. And you'd be like... This isn't really a great learning environment. No, I don't like if, this. If, you know, you could actually wear something else, you could get changed at lunchtime, go and play football, come back. Throw on your your shorts and t-shirt, your jersey. Exactly. Even if they don't want jerseys to cause arguments in the classroom, I understand. But throw on, just give us a, give us a sports gear. T-shirt and shorts isn't that expensive. Um, it would smell a lot better in it the classroom, would, I think. It would, definitely, if you could just get rid of that. The, the school, the nylon shirts that were, whatever they were made of, whatever weird... Plastic had been smelted somewhere Just in the, the dark f- part of the world. Fear of August going in with your mother or your father to pick out your uniform, yeah, and like try all try. The, you knew you were heading back to school. Then you go to the stationery shop next door for just straight away after, and panic stations would set in. Um, but the point on the point on mixed schools is also a good one. Like, look, myself and a lot of my mates went to all boys primary and then an all boys secondary as well. But um, and look, some of them did turn out all right. Some of them even got married to or engaged to. to Human women, and we're able to talk to them as well. But it took a long time. It took a long time. Yeah, yeah, but but it's certainly a point where I think that should be that should be discussed more. You know, mixed schools. Um, in fairness, Jack Chambers convened a forum, and so hopefully it's not like I tell you what we'll do. We'll have a forum. We we'll kick the can down the road, and sure, somebody else will be the minister for sport by the time the results come back, and we won't have to do anything about it. But we'll have said, oh, we, we oh yeah oh we had a we had a report on that. Yeah, we should we should think about this. Just do it. Yeah. Right, fix it. Fix uniforms. If found students were frustrated with the insufficient amount of time and the scope of PE activities available in schools with only a handful of sports, often major field sports being the focus of attention, too much emphasis on team sports, more attention should be paid to individual or less popular sports, the report states. The priority was being given to sports played by boys with girls' sports losing out as a result. It is ridiculous. Like, when you think about the dropout, particularly in female sports, schools is a massive opportunity to engineer girls continuing to stay in sport and all you have to do is say we're going to prioritise PE and we're going to prioritise non-field sports in schools. Mm. The massive field sports 
all have money sometimes from uh, Sport Ireland to hire coaches who go into the schools if they do that after school great that's a brilliant thing but during school uh, ideally you should be doing stuff that you can't do elsewhere teach kids gymnastics in school teach them how to sprint teach them how to do long distance running whatever it is like whatever the best pedagogy says you should do you should do that yeah. The findings also note issues around menstruation are problematic, especially when coaches either do not know how to address or approach related performance issues or are insensitive or unaccommodating to the constraints on the athletes concerned. Basically, uh, women in secondary school are not getting the same level of treatment as the men, and that's ridiculous this day and age, right? It seems to be commonplace, far too commonplace in this country. Like, And even I remember in, in school, like, and, and sometimes the, the, the best, the most enjoyable PE lessons for us were the ones that took the least effort from a PE teacher. There's a ball. Play five aside, pick your own teams, and I'll just go over here and, and you know correct some tests for my maths class. Uh, we used to love that because we want to play indoor soccer. But then I think of the kids who, in in, in our year, didn't like football or, yeah. or sport generally. Yeah. They'd be sent up the top uh, with a table tennis bat. Oh, there you go, play table tennis. Yeah. And they're like, well, I don't like table tennis. There was nothing for them to do. No. And the, there, was, there was a lot of those kids as well in, in school where it was grand for people like myself who really enjoyed team sports and sport generally, but there were so many kids who... I only thought about maybe after I left school and I was like they had nothing to do like, they were literally they would, they would just sit there during PE and, and actually, talk they're the ones who are the most important ones in PE because yeah. you're going to be grand because you're already playing sport anyway outside of school yeah. um, and, and they weren't getting any exercise whatsoever so they needed to be included in some sense and just weren't so yeah the very people that the PE in, in Irish schools should be directed towards uh, perhaps forgets which is kind of worrying uh, so hopefully something comes of that. Uh, right, some of your comments from earlier. I'll, I'll do the back pages, the rest of them. Uh, Tour de Force, French next for Impressive England. Nappy days for Reed. This is TJ Reed and uh, his wife, Neve de Bruyne, and their daughter, Harper Mary, after the uh, game at Croker yesterday. Henry is still sweet on Honeysuckle. Honeysuckle being beaten, uh, turned over for the first time in her career, was the big story from the racing at the weekend. Um, uh, in the Hatton's Grace. Tia Hooper, Ferrier's. wasn't it? Yeah. Now, uh, there's always a Leperstown race, and then obviously, mm. so, uh, you know. So it's the first race of the season, essentially. Yeah, it's going to be. It, yeah, but at the same time, uh, did coming towards the last chosen front, and you're thinking, all right, okay, mm. afterburners anytime now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it didn't come. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So, um, maybe Honeysuckle's comeback is going to be the big story of over the rest of the year, or not. Like, you know, horses reach a peak, and then other horses come and. and Take them, and yeah. that's the ebb and flow of life, right? That was one of the highlights of my sporting year, twenty twenty two. Was it honeysuckle in Punchestown? Well, there was both. The, the two races were almost exactly the same. Yeah, honeysuckle in Punchestown and Cheltenham were both. Yeah. Oh, sorry, in um, it's not Leperstown and Cheltenham. Was it? Uh, they come back and do Punchestown. Saw, as well. I saw honeysuckle somewhere. I can't remember where he was this year, but uh, <laughs> you saw it in in person in the I flesh. Was, I was at the racing. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, then, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Owen Sheehan was there as well. Um, oh, then you were the, you were Punchestown. Yeah, Punchestown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was honeysuckle, wasn't it that day? Uh, I'm not sure. No, I can't remember. Uh, I wasn't there. Look, I had a great day. <laughs> As you can probably tell, I had a great day, Ger. Uh Some of it is fairly um, hazy in my mind, but uh, I for sure had a great day. Uh, but Honeysuckle, yeah, to see, to see her lose. Uh, Rachel Blackmore on board as well. Surprising, but um, Leopard's time to come, as you say. Yeah. All right. That was your sports pages. Uh, right. At 8.41, uh, Carl Milani is with us. Carl, good morning to you. How are morning, you? lads. How's it going? Are you well? Lots of GA action in the sports pages this morning as well. Um, yeah. What was your pick for the weekend? Uh, well, I was actually down in uh, Pierce Stadium yesterday, my cutting against Tour de Strand. I'm still frozen afterwards. 
so-called Parisian coldest place in the actually. world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and my Cullen were good. Like they 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 came into it really well in the second half, and you know, Peter Cook was outstanding. Um, I'd imagine Park Joyce is going to do everything he can to get him into the Galway panel because uh, just such a good figure around the middle of the field, tall, athletic, kicked I think three great points. Um, and he really would add an awful lot to go even though they have a very strong team at the moment but he really would add a lot to, to go I think next year mm. um, he has been based in America but he's back home I think for the last little while which has really helped Mike Cullen as well um, whether they're all Ireland contenders well obviously they're, they're in the last four now but whether they're at the level of, of, of a Kilmucker Croaks or, or a Kilku I'm not sure but um, they're actually, definitely in bonus territory. I think they're going to play Glenn in the yeah. Ireland semi-final I think Glenn will be Kilku that could be a decent game Mike Cullen could take another scalp. Like, yeah. They're that good. Yeah, they shot to prominence really with the hammering they gave Westport, the Mayo champions in the first round in Connacht and then they struggled against Strokestown and yesterday they probably were in control for all of the game. Like They, they were into the win in the first half and they they were 4-3 up at half time and then they, they put on a little bit of a spurt in the second half. Um, Tour de Strand have won seven in a row in Sligo so they've really dominated there. It was their first Connacht f- final in 40 years and they had a couple of chances that they ruined the first half but Moy Cullen have a great age profile they're really athletic um, good management team as well Don Cannell and the former Riscommon footballers over them and they've got all the, the ingredients um, and they've also got the hunger because they won the Galway title for the first time two years ago but that was during Covid so there was no provincial championship or All-Ireland mm. so they're kind of in uh, bonus territory um, then on the way back I was listening to the, the stuff in Crow Park uh, where Kilmacud put in that big comeback against Ballyhale Minnow's Kilmacud Croaks yeah yeah Um have to give them a lot of credit because yeah. the weather was terrible in Dublin by all accounts when that game was on yesterday uh, but you know I, I think Kilmacud are are they by a stretch the best football team in the country at the moment Oh, I think I, so I think it's closer than people like I think Glenn and Cullen are closer than people give them credit for you think I think so um, like they've had it fairly Easy, relatively speaking, so far, Kilmacud Crooks this year. So yeah. far, like, well, maybe they feel by a point. No? So, yeah, in Dublin, the double championship, they had a, yeah, a couple of testy games. Uh, I feel like once they get out of the province, it becomes a bit of a. Just a it was it was over early. Yeah, yeah it got it was. late early. Yeah, um, and I think that might have been nerves, and it might have been occasion. You know, so many of those Crooks players have obviously played in big matches throughout their like club life, but also mm. exterior to that, you have some absolute superstars of the game and. They just dealt with the whole thing better. Yeah, uh, that's the thing about Michael as well. They have they have county players galore, right? Don't is it yeah, Paul Kelly and they've got something like six panelists, I think, on the Galway panel. Like, yeah, that's experience. Like, I know a lot of decent club teams have a lot of county players on it, but like, you need that experience on the team yeah, as well. Yeah, um, yeah, and obviously the Galway champions over the last how many number of years have always done well in the provincial and all Ireland series. Um, but yeah, I guess they could. Yeah, I mean. Kilku, is it, is it fair to write them off at this stage? I don't know. No, not fair at all. I think it'll be a close Ulster final. Yeah. I just think this is the year where Glenn take the step and yeah. beat them. Yeah. Um, Maliki O'Rourke, like, they're so focused on Glenn this. Like, I'm hearing stories out of the club itself and none of them want to talk. Conor Glass is in prime form at the minute for them, unsurprisingly. Mm. Um, like, I think Kilmacud have that semi-final against Cairns O'Rahillies or Newcastle West, which I think they'll win. I think the final is going to be tasty. Whether it's Moy Cullen or Kilku or Glenn. Like it's going to be a very, very tasty All Ireland club final. Yeah, um, Kilmacud just—they're too good. Shane Walsh nine points, just the nine points again. I mean, and they were kicking a lot of wides. Yeah, yesterday as well. Like, um, where would first where, where like uh, and this has been mentioned about Ballygunner and the hurling as well. Like, where would these top club teams come 
if they were thrown in with the, the inter-county teams Kill McCode would win the Talton Cup you think wouldn't they oh I don't know West I mean, it, 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 like okay so we have to assume that the players who play for them can't play for anybody else yeah exactly yeah. and that's their be all and end all of their entire life is that I, what we're saying I don't, yeah exactly I, I don't want that to sound disrespectful to Westmead I had Paul Mannion in yeah, you're having Paul Mannion in. That's a good team. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It has to include Mannion and Walsh, but I think that team wins the, or comes close to winning at least the Tatton Cup. I mean, it, that that's a good Division Three team in the Allianz Leagues. They're getting promoted, and so they're therefore like in the, the Tatton Cup. Division Two. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to disagree. It's, it might sound batshit crazy, but that's how good they don't are. Know, don't know. So. Yeah, but the level you have to give a lot of credit to the top club teams at the level they've they've got to. In hurling and football, like the Ballygunners and the Kilmacuds and the Kilcoos. Ridiculous. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. And then, the, I suppose, wouldn't it be nice to... <laughs> we've had this argument as well before about the intra-county season and playing it in good weather, but mm. what would these teams be like in, yeah, in August and September oh. with fast pitches? Because the games, naturally enough, are low-scoring with the heavy pitches now and wind and rain and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, it's good entertainment. It's good entertainment. And uh, I think... Possibly Kilmacud, I think, for the football, and then Ballygunner for the hurling. This, this, sorry, go on. Well, the semi-finals for the hurling, Ballygunner, Ballyhale are on one side, <laughs> so it's a repeat of last year's All-Ireland final. Yeah, that's winner takes all, crack, isn't it? I mean, this this feels like the first club championship in in a long time where everyone is talking about it. It's needless to say. Like I have, like even yesterday, I was looking up results of the Wexford, like or the Leinster. Senior chapter. I'm like, I, I never looked this shit up. Like, this is not normal that we're all so focused and obsessed with it, and it's great. I, and people are like, oh, no, I'm, I don't care about the club championship. A lot more people care about the club championship this year than than did in years gone by. Maybe that's because it gets its own area. Who knows? And uh, a little bit of TV time, a little bit of media time. We're taught we're actually talking about it, not because we need to or we need we need to feel the need to insert it into our conversations, but it's actually decent. Um, and it's, been, it's up against the World Cup as well so yeah. what'll, what'll happen when there's nothing else on um, anything else? Yeah a few bits last night uh, just in golf Norwegian Victor Hovland won the Hero World Challenge he won by two shots on 16 under Shane Lowry was uh, five over par there and he finished in 18th and in some uh, snooker news I don't know if Shane might have been keeping an eye on the uh, Scottish Open mm. uh, Gary Wilson winning his first ever ranking event last night he beat Joe Connor by nine frames to two in the final of the Scottish Open in Edinburgh mm. alright Carl good stuff thanks many for that thanks lads uh, right OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day uh, Vidi Perth is going to join us in the studio to talk about the tactical nuances of the World Cup but uh, before that I want to tell you about Brayburn Coffee which is the official coffee partner of OTB the festive season is officially here so why not enjoy a shot of gingerbread goodness in your Brayburn Coffee today it's available at Apple Green locations nationwide uh, here is L'Equipe's Jean-Philippe Leclerc talking about the majesty of Kylian Mbappe take a look with about 10 minutes to go in the first half, Poland had three gilt-edged chances and uh, it, you know, it was a good save from Lloris in the second one, I believe it was, uh, to keep them out. Um, when you look back on the teams that France have beaten in this tournament so far, uh, you mentioned Denmark, Australia and now Poland as well. The two of those teams probably coming into this a little undercooked and Australia you know, kind of happy to be there. Uh, do you think France will struggle when they come up against one of the more top-tier nations if they do so against England in the next round? Yeah, but who are the top nation? Who are the top nation who have who have done a perfect uh, World Cup so far? Mm. I mean, uh, even uh, even Brazil uh, has lost. Even uh, Argentina has lost against uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, so um, so as far as now, I think we are we are among the favorites. And uh, what is uh, really reassuring is that uh, we have seen tonight that we can 
that maybe he was the best player of the tournament so far. Because uh, if you want to make comparison between the Messi that we saw yesterday and the and the Barbe that we we saw tonight, I mean, uh, even if you're not French, I think you have to admit that that uh, Mbappe was better. I mean, he scored two goals and and the, 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 his influence on the game and uh, and uh, of course he has missed some opportunities in the first half, but uh, in uh, all the, the opportunities he can create on his own, it's really amazing. So so uh, I mean, the mood in France is quite is is more optimistic. That's for sure. Than what it was before the tournament with all these injuries, but I think that's we are so lucky to have this generation that uh, even if we don't have the Pogba, the the, the Angolo Kante, the, the the Karim Benzema, I mean we still have so many players that are playing for the top clubs, so top teams in Europe. So we are really blessed for 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 that reason. Jean-Philippe Leclerc of L'Equipe newspaper uh, talking yesterday with Aidan Delaney. Now, Vinny Perth is with us. Uh, Vinny, good morning to you. How are you? Morning. How are you doing? Um, you were saying Shane was blasphemous for putting the World Cup in the orange a little bit earlier on. Yeah. for um, If it was non-football reasons, okay. But for anything football, I think the World Cup has been brilliant for me. has been absolutely brilliant. And I was, um, I was trying to debate uh, whether it's one of the best of all time and in my lifetime, it's right up there. We've had some good ones, to be fair, in 98 or whatever, but I think this has been brilliant. I think it really has been an outstanding tournament. Why? What's the... Um, I suppose someone from Little All Ireland who coached the Little All League of Ireland team in Champions League football, I'm watching the emergence of these new teams. I can see why it's happening. Um, you can see, like, last night, uh, within a half an hour of the England game being over, there's a 51-page document on uh, every stat on that, right? Uh, and now, they, uh, Ronnie was giving out about it on commentary. Yeah, yeah. 51 pages, one game, what? Well, like, come on, Ronnie. Yeah, so this is some of the drawbacks for me and um, of the World Cup. is, I'm not talking about Ronnie. Uh, I actually have met Ronnie a good few times. Great. But some of the analysis of punditry around it hasn't been brilliant because it's been such a good spectacle I've been disappointed in that so I was listening to one show yesterday um, talking about the surprise that um, in the France game the opposition France played sorry, Poland have had so much of the ball 45 to 50 I'm going have you not been watching France for the last four years lads I find myself shouting at the TV so go off and make a cup of tea and come back because France let you have the ball right. by and large but yeah and sorry to go back to the 51 page document Yes, there's some nonsense in it, there's some different things. But the key to it all is, every team now is completely and utterly prepared for the opposition they play against. Mm-hmm. There's no surprises, and it hasn't led to stale matches. It hasn't. Maybe the start of the games have been a little bit stale, but by the time the game has moved on, I think uh, it's been fascinating. And that has given the so-called smaller nations a better, better chance, and has made it one of the most competitive World Cups we've seen. Um I'm all in favour of the smaller nations, obviously. Like you know, yeah. this is good sure, for us in, yeah. in the long run. Um, I also do feel like for it to be a truly great World Cup, we want to see the big nations at the end coming through. So we, we'll see if anything happens now over the next while. But um, you're making a point this morning to us that uh, seems counterintuitive that the five subs rule is actually benefiting these smaller nations. Yeah, uh, again, going out to punditry is like it's a little bit. And again, football's about opinion, and life's about opinion. I'm not sure. Um, in in life anymore you can be centrist or whatever the right word is you have to be either left and shout and right and shout but if you actually it's so easy just to throw out five substitutes to big teams 
And when you look last night, definitely England's substitutes were brilliant and they made a huge difference, top-class players. But actually, if you go back to the sort of three main upsets, if you go back to Saudi Arabia, Japan and South Korea, the difference there was those... Like, again, when you think of these statistics, every team now is running... Uh, the team statistics in around 112, 114, 15 kilometres in the game. So it takes a huge amount of effort to do that. Teams are turning up able to do that now. The five subs helps. So if you're, and it also breaks up the game. So I, I, I've been a coach with a five team, uh, five sub rule, and all of a sudden the opposition are making, now you can only do it three times. It's breaking the flow, and you're making your own subs as well. Late in the game, that Argentina game, um, we all go back to it been a brilliant moment. There was a lot of stop starting. You can't get your rhythm. Players can't go. And, it, and at times, it's helping the opposition uh, to hit those statistics that they need to do to match the very, very top teams. So you've, if you think about it, you've got 10 outfield players and you're able to replace 50% of them. So the running power that's needed in the game now, you've got 50% chance of freshening up your team and bringing on people who know what they're doing and... It, and where it helps the, the smaller nations is most of the players are even enough. You look at the Irish squad, easy. Most of our players are standard-wise in around the same. So you're not bringing on really poor players. It's not a massive change. No. And it's really helping the teams. And I think the easiest thing to throw out is, oh, this is going to suit the big teams. Like Man City can make five changes. And it does help them when they're winning a game. But if you're not winning a game, you need to change the flow of a game. If you're a pep, you're looking at the opposition going... Oh, not another substitute. Well, it's been really interesting to note that he, when he's losing games, yes. very frequently makes no changes, or like very late in the day will make some changes. Yeah, and it's uh, you talk, we use the word the rhythm of the game, and you see what's happening, and and it's a big thing for me. It's a bit like the the um, the amount of stoppages. Um, I've been saying on this show or doing co-coms about it's scourging our game. There was there was a free kick a couple of days ago. Um, in one of the games and it took nearly three and a half minutes for that free kick to be taken because there were changes to be made there was, no it was only one sub but the referee had to get the wall back he had to then speak to someone then there was a little bit of pushing in the box and he goes over there the next time you see a penalty watch what, what the referee does he'll go to the keeper and tell him stay on your line and he'll do all this and yeah. some do it more he'd then go to the edge of the box and he'd speak to the players and then he may blow the whistle down or there may be some incidents where two lads are pushing on the box and then the guy gets to take the penalty. It is the flow of the game has gone ridiculous, and we have to fix it. Normally, you have time to go and put the kettle on when the penalty gets awarded, and yeah. you still get back in to, to see yeah. it. Yeah. So it is. It's dragging the life out of it. Okay. So the, that um, distance and high speed running of the weaker teams is as good as the top teams. Is that having an, an, an obvious immediate impact on results, or is it just putting them in games that maybe in the past they would have been overawed or? Not, uh, they would have been overmatched in the last 10-15 minutes it's, it's keeping them in games longer is that the impact of that? Yeah absolutely so you, you look at the top players generally like you, you look at the game last yesterday France and um, Poland Mbappe's two big moments were world class um, Poland had to go for it so they weren't they were 1-0 down Maddie Cash if you actually watch um, um, the, the, the second French goal Maddy Cash, and this is where France, it's a tricky one for them, and I know you've discussed them already, you won't go overboard with it, but Mbappe cheats, he cheats on the left, 
doesn't run back, doesn't press, but when he gets the ball, he comes alive. And that's a French tactic. They let opposition have the ball at times. So Manny Cash has an opportunity. If you watch the goal back, but he actually go back maybe 45 seconds. Manny Cash gets freedom to break. He played really well in the game. His cross is under hit, and it's cleared. France clear it, and it's a 3v3. Ball breaks to Mbappe, and it's a bit of class. Okay, But the difference is, will a top team and a top right back really punish them because Mbappe's cheating or are you brave enough as a Southgate to go to uh, Kyle Walker or Trippier go on ex- exploit what he's going to leave in behind us and and that's the fascinating part of the top teams now matching up against each yeah. other but there's but there's them moments where um, if 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 you're still in games like Graeme Graham Hunter spoke brilliantly on the show uh, I was listening to in the gym um, maybe last week about the Argentine-Japan or Argentina-Saudi Arabia game it was only two moments of brilliance and the rest was just the old-fashioned hard work, desire, five changes, as I said, freshness, and it's keeping teams and it's keeping games alive. <clears throat> the importance of the press has been something that's been obvious in the World Cup, but you've also kind of pointed out the <clears throat> teams like France and Argentina letting other teams have the ball. That There seems to be elements of that. Yeah, um, again, going back to the, uh, the French game is a good example because it's fresh in our mind. Pundits are, are going... God, you know, Poland have 45, 46% of possession. Yeah, because that's the manager's style in France. It's, it's let them have it, um, wait for little moments, and then you don't have Mbappe running after the ball, closing people down, press, press, press. When he needs to do his magic, he's fresh, he's hungry, he's got all that desire, and he'll run all over teams. And I think um, you, you see it with England at different stages, they'll press. It's, it's become, you know, we all talk about Jurgen Klopp had this, really high press high energy and we've seen a lot of teams it's called mid block now in football where they'll and again going back to our 51 page document they're actually measuring where teams defensive line starts from from the edge of the box um, it's become part of the Arsene Wenger is, is, is controlling all this but it will give you if you think a team like France they won't press as high as a team like uh, we'd say USA who've been brilliant at it and and you'll see all these different sort of uh, differences but a lot of teams now aren't uh, solely focused on controlling the ball for a long period of times again you you, you think about the Dutch it's not about that no, it's, it's, it's about um, conserving your energy and using your really top class players at the right moment what are the other trends? The number nine, the the disappearing number nine. Well, well, I'll throw one back to you. Is who's the best centre forward in in the World Cup? Normally, you go back all the years. The closer coming, all of a sudden, turns up for Germany or Lineker. If you want to go back to the eighties, where who is it at the moment? Richardson. Yeah, <laughs> and we're not developing in in world football because when the likes of Pep went to four three three and played false nines, like. Whether it's in Ireland, whether it's in England, whether it's in Ecuador, the four four two is gone. So therefore, the law of averages tell you uh, under eights, nines, tens, all the way up. You're not got two centre forwards. You've only probably got one. Mm. And we're developing a hell of a lot more players. To be fair, who play wide, whether it's Rashford, whether it's uh, Foden, Mbappe, um, brilliant people, uh, Gecko, all of these people, and we're developing a lot of. Um, midfielders like you know you look at Spain um, and Pedri and, and these people but we've stopped developing world class centre forwards maybe to be fair the best one his team haven't qualified in Haaland but beyond that there is a real real shortage of what you would call out now centre forwards and you'd have to wonder 
is it a long term trend or are we going to have to say there'll be a counter cycle again counter cycle where someone and comes and says 4-4-2 I'm going to go with that and then that sets a trend throughout world football and we start developing again because they, they simply aren't there um, we've talked a good bit about uh, I think on the show Messi you know, naturally enough yeah. over the course of the tournament um, but the, the next generation of footballers who are taking over the world are announcing themselves and like Bellingham is in the vanguard of that everybody knew Jude Bellingham was really good Yes. Um, but the fact that he's doing it in the World Cup and staying on his feet where he could easily go down and uh, he's doing it in, in pressure moments um, that's impressive Mbappe obviously this is going to be the second World Cup where he's been absolutely astonishing yeah but do you not think we all missed a trick generally when the best player in the world turns up at a World Cup his team are are, are, are the dog's dinner we sort of forgot about France a little bit and Mbappe can win a World Cup on his own what's been fascinating is the amount of top players in because we are technically mid-season who look like now they're finished whether it's Lewandowski Suarez I know they were gone Eriksen looked like he's short um, Garrett Bale his time is up is is the German goalkeeper now finished is that him there's so many Cavani Thomas Muller so many Belgians. top class oh, you could name one Belgian player but you could probably say the Belgian squad is finished the Germany squad is now third um, De Bruyne looked looked like he needed to be playing a better team we still think he's world class but so many Gundogan looks like you're going is he is he about to be passed now because there's so many exciting players all over the world that have emerged in this tournament and, and they've been coming it's not like uh, a World Cup where someone has a great tournament for Cameroon or Senegal we're going we'll have a look at him but no these are developing nicely at top European clubs and even ironically the likes of France benefiting perhaps from Benzema not being in the team like well Giroud clearly benefiting but France as a whole seem to be doing well without him but we always worried about French midfield mm. and like you've got Caravinga not getting into the team who's I, I think a potential superstar if he, if he goes on the next year or two at Real Madrid he's sort of slowly developing into that team um, his teammate has got in ahead of him again only 21 the amount of 21 22 year old players that are there and have, have shown how good they are has been outstanding like in this World Cup I was thinking about that from an Ireland perspective. It's like stick them in, stick the kids in, and like that's you know. Uh, anyway, but but the other thing is, um, I think it was Aim Sweeney's piece yesterday was talking about the amount of managers in the independent that are from the home nations like Australia, USA, and they've gone and done a root and branching in these countries in Australia, in in the USA, and it does take time, but the benefits there, you know, they're long term and they're forever. Yeah, yeah, but we, we're not allowed to look long term. No. You know, we have to look no. through English rose tinted glasses every let's, week. Let's get a quick fix. Uh, Kevin Kaman is with us as well, live from Qatar. Kevin, good morning to you. Good morning, Jay. How are you getting on? Yeah, good. Good night last night, was it? No, I tell you, there's no nights here at all. I keep saying this to you. Honestly, <laughs> I, I fell asleep last night about 6am. Honestly, I've, my sleep pattern's all over the place. And uh, that's the longest sleep I've had. I managed to get about five and a half hours this morning. And then I missed... As you know, so sorry, lads. Sorry, no worries. No worries. This morning. What's uh, sure? We we got there in the end. Uh, we've been chatting with yeah. with Vinny about some of the trends that we've seen so far. Um, yeah, I've just been listening to it. Really interesting. Very, very good. Actually, the, the stuff that I've just been listening to there. Yeah. What are you seeing, or what are you what are you hearing from people talking about stuff? Um, well, we we're kind of quite isolated, really. What we're doing. I've I've only actually got the chance to to get to two games. We're kind of just going between here, the hotel, and the studio most days. 
try and get bits of work done around the games that we're doing. I was doing the second game last night, so I was doing the England game last night. And I'm hoping to get to Morocco, Spain in a couple of days. But it's it's really interesting saying about the trends and, you know, is is this tiredness? I know Martinez spoke of it with Belgium. Um, who was the other the coach? Oh, the Serbian coach was actually talking about it as well, talking about Juve, the Juve players that were in the Serbian team, how tired they were when they met up with the squad. There is the, the it's certain sides they haven't looked fresh. They haven't looked like they've come into the tournament where they've had that little bit of a week's break, like most sides do. If it's a three or a four week um, change between the season finishing and a World Cup starting, and then you kind of build back up for it during that next two weeks into the tournament, and sides haven't had that. That you know most teams played on the Saturday and the Sunday. They met up on the Monday, and then they have five days, six days to prepare for the first match. So, I think it has been something that's been spoken about. The a lot of teams don't look as fresh as maybe one or two others. But in saying that, if I looked at a South American team, certainly if I looked at, say, say Brazil in that first game, and I know Brazil had a great squad, but Brazil seemed to, just going back to what uh, to what Vinny was saying earlier about the freshness of players, if you look at Brazil, Brazil were a slow burner going through the first half of games. And then when they introduced substitutes who, whether or not it was having something to prove or whether or not the, the, the freshness of bringing four or five subs into the game. Brazil, in the last 20 minutes of, of Serbia game, I was at the Switzerland game, the tempo they were setting, and even Argentina as well, in their second game, I think it was, that certainly the, um, not the Poland game, the third match, the tempo in the last 20 minutes of the game was definitely on a higher level than the first 15, 20 minutes of that match. Do you think of, um, you said you wanted the Morocco game, like, how far away are we now from an African or Asian team winning the World Cup? Are we getting any closer? Um, I, well, I told you that I fancied, I, I actually do fancy Morocco to beat Spain. Um, and that's down to, from what I've seen. And again, you may be judging it from the from the Belgium game. I, obviously, I saw them live against Canada. Uh, sorry, I was at the three Canada games as well. So I did see Belgium, Croatia and, and Morocco live as well. I... I think if an African team's going to win it, I think it might be one of the, the North African teams, i.e. Egypt, uh, Morocco. Morocco's development of players, if you look at their squad, look at their certainly starting eleven in the last game. There and I I used to say this when I played when I played for Ireland myself. You you kinda look at the clubs and you you're saying, right, well he's at Fiorentina, he's at uh, PSG, he's at wherever, whichever club they were at probably when I was playing. And you kind of get fixated with the, the, the club that a team's at because you think, well, yes, top players because they're at that team. But I always tried to have it in my head that, look, whoever they're at, you know, whether that was, you know, Figo or um, Reisinger when he, was at, when he was at Barcelona, don't play the club, just play the player. And invariably, once that game starts and you're getting into a rhythm of the match, yes, they do have quality moments in the game, but you do feel at home when you're playing against these guys simply because of the physical nature that maybe I could bring when, when I was playing in the game. So, um, although Morocco, as I said, they've got a lot of these players and they're all at top clubs. I think as a team, I think the organisation, I think they can score from a set piece. They like to pass. They like to, to play through midfield as well. They've got three brilliant three brilliant midfielders, but they've also got a bit of class out wide as well. That's, that's probably why I fancy one of those... Uh, North Moroccan sides. In, in, in answer to your question, Shane, I think we're still a little bit off. Certainly Brazil, Argentina, and certainly three or four of the European sides, they're still a little bit of a way off, but we may see it maybe in, in two World Cups where they can actually reach that level. 
Were you on your head at the Morocco thing there? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you look at the squad um, of, of players they have and where they come from. Um, but again, it's not good football. Cavs, right? They could they could definitely beat Spain. But the difference, I would say, um, I don't know whether Kev agrees. The difference is with the with the top, particularly European nations, or whether it's Argentina, Brazil, they have them one or two players that are just a level above. And it, go back to Mbappe yesterday. Two moments because he was average in the game. Mm-hmm. Average, average is the wrong word, mm-hmm. but two moments of just sheer brilliance. End of story, game over. Thanks, and and most of the top teams have that. Um, can I? Yeah, ask I, I I'd, I'd see that too, Vinny, as well. Um, maybe I, I I absolutely have seen that one or two players are definitely making a difference in moments, as you said before. I heard you talking about Japan guys, and I heard you talking about one or two of the other games. It has been moments that have actually killed off teams. If you look. You know, Senegal actually did, did did well, didn't they, for the first 35 minutes yeah. of the game? Yeah. And then Bellingham makes one run where he bursts a line, and they, they seem to they, they just couldn't they couldn't cope with that just one bit of movement. You know, you get yourself back in the in the shape of two banks of four as it was. They can. They, I thought Senegal last night followed a bit of a template of how USA did it, and I thought the weakness from in that USA game they should I thought they should have played Trent Alexander Arnold in that match in particular because I felt that the out ball was getting into wide areas, whereas. England are constantly looking into midfield to get Declan Rice into the game and what the USA did and what Senegal did they just kept the, the two strikers back into position to prevent that first ball going in so they were playing a, a, off a pivot at times yeah. to prevent the ball going into Rice and uh, I, I, ju- I just feel that as just what I was saying there is little moments that moment from Bellingham just opened the game up and that's what we're seeing I think throughout in, in various matches Yeah and the game intelligence I know Nadam discussed earlier on but the movement or the intelligence of Jordan Henderson mm. of that ball over the top just to change up the game and he's played in some of the best games in the world and the best example of that is if you go back to when Rashford came on uh, ball set for Henderson no even thought about it one over the corner um, Rashford's in a brilliant pass and Harry Kane misses it by half an inch that sums up the game intelligence of Jordan Henderson and um, we, we can all knock different people but that's where they've got the experience Champions League football top end football well, it's Vinny, Vinny you know just to say Vinny on the you know maybe we're asking about North African I'm talking about North African teams or African teams and you talk about European sides having that advantage is that coaching development from a younger age do you feel that could be that could be the difference, or is it something something else that you're seeing? Yeah, no, I think it's definitely, um, particularly someone like Henderson or whoever it is. But if you're in that England squad, you've played high level football from probably England under 14, 15, 16, 17. Um, they've they've they're now challenged. You speak to um, I recently was speaking to Paddy McCarthy. Um, who had a great career in England he's working at Crystal Palace under it's now 21s yeah. and you speak to Paddy and the amount of development that goes on with these players and it's starting to happen you, you, you don't tell me that the likes of America won't know how to develop players in the next 5-10 years they will have every single system in place that it takes so it, it is starting to level itself out but it's just more experience of young players being able to play at the highest level or Henderson win the Champions League football I think it's game. also the amount of players playing at the highest level so without Sadio Mane in the team they yeah. didn't, the Senegal didn't have recourse to somebody at that level like um, if England were to lose any of their best players they have somebody who's fairly close in standards to yeah, yeah and, but the other thing is like, like take Ireland and Wales not to go off script there really quickly the difference is 
both squads are similar. Look at the Wales midfield squad. It's made up of players, championship, different things. But for the last sort of eight years, they've had one difference. Yeah. Garrett Bale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And once you have that, it gives you a hell of a chance. If you've got one world star, if we if we had a, a world star, hey, we, we could be there ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Not to put any pressure on anybody, but no. uh, t- time is ticking here, lads. Come on. <clears throat> uh, last last yeah, question. Uh, the um, the Jordan Henderson game intelligence, you, you missed it earlier with um, Nathan Manua on, Kevin. He was saying that, I'm not sure who gets the credit for it, but that uh, Saka had um, not made a run. Henderson balled him out for like 10, 15 seconds, and all of a sudden everybody started making runs. Now, to, to to like change the tempo of the game. I don't know. Does Southgate get some credit for that? Like, because that's been the thing that people have held against him. Doesn't really have it in game. But if they are now able to change stuff in games, because I had the first half hour down to a little bit of nervousness and pressure. But actually, they just the the form wasn't right. They weren't doing the things they were supposed to be doing. And a, a, a technical tactical fix changed. It wasn't like a penny dropped or they got to grips with the occasion. It was like actually they started doing something different and it had an impact. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I actually felt that Southgate changed it in running as well in um, what was the, the third game? Was it Wales as well? He, 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 he's changing up a couple of things. And I think I've certainly noticed with Southgate, I think that's the one thing from the Euros four years ago where he stuck with that rigid side. And I know they got to the final, but you kind of felt with England it was just about the, the, the shape of the side that we're going to stop side scoring and we're going to work our way through our tournament, plan our route to the final I do think that by by playing Foden, maybe bringing Foden into the game, it certainly changes the dynamic of, of if he's just going to be coming off the line, the less of the, the less of the well, they obviously went with the two, wasn't it, in the first game? Henderson coming in, I think changing from changing from the two four two three one with with Mason Mount playing as a ten, and as I said to you, I thought Mount played well, and I think Mount can actually play as an eight. But by changing to, to Rice on their own and bringing Henderson into the game and, and Bellingham, Bellingham seems to suit. That, that style, I'd feel, within the system. I mean, I mean in, in relation to Saka's run for the goal as well, I just felt Saka just was just desperate to get between the goal. His run actually attracted um, uh, Jacobs, wasn't it? Jacobs, the fullback from from Senegal, when they were when they were both going in as Bellingham was moving down the left, and Jacobs actually had Henderson. But what he what he did, I think he just caught um, Saka in his eye line, and he checked off for a split second. And in that split second, it just freed Henderson just. If you look at it from the tactical cam from the top of the screen, it, it was it's, it's a great shot of it. He kind of just deviates his run for two seconds, and then he can't he can't get back to Henderson in that moment. And that's that's the difference, as we know at this level. It's that 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 thought that thought process as, as Jacobs is getting back into position. He just can't see where the immediate danger is, and he wasn't helped maybe defensively. They're a little bit out of shape, as I spoke of Bellingham's run that, that, that created it and things like that, but. I, I do think Southgate has probably learned to change things in running that he didn't do in the Euros. And I think that is what we're seeing from him, whether or not it's going with the two at midfield, it works so well against Iran, having to change against the US. And he didn't really change it against the US, but it was the change that he made later on in that match when he did actually go to to, to one sitting and he used that against Wales. And yeah. that's kind of how they set up in the next few games. Yeah, they're definitely, they're definitely, and it's going to be a great game, England, France, that, that side of the, that, the fixtures that we already know are going to be great. Maybe the. Do you know what? One thing as well, I know that you were talking about France there. I heard Vinny talking about it. Honestly, France is most important player this tournament. And I know Mbappe, aside of Mbappe, it's been Antoine Griezmann. Antoine Griezmann, he looks to me like he was at the level that he was at at Atletico before he moved to, to Barcelona. His work rate playing as a 10, 
because he's played off the right-hand side a lot for France. And I think by bringing him as a 10, Dombelli's playing so well out on the right-hand side. There's a great out ball. He wasn't at his best last night, but I think he's playing well. He looks a threat. The work rate, if you look at if you look at the goal, uh, was it Mbappé's, was it the first goal? Look who was clearing the ball in the six-yard box. It was Griezmann. He hooked the ball over his shoulder before that great touch from Giroud that freed up Dombelli before um, Mbappé scored. Yeah. Griezmann is playing so well, Jer, at the moment. I think he's on, he, he has really got almost got something to prove out here. I think he's playing so well. He nearly hit the uh, the spider cam at that stage. Um, last word to you. Do you have a winner in mind at this stage, or is it okay? Uh, JD asked me this a week or so ago. You still um, still haven't decided. I was like, but in fairness, <laughs> how can you pick a winner? Which is great. Like Brazil can win. I think I think the, the top. There's probably seven teams that can still win at this stage. I like. Well, if Morocco beats Spain, it'll be great. I really want to see this young Spanish team in a massive game yeah. where they're not expected to win, and they like there's a, an opportunity for them to step up, and maybe they can kill the Ronaldo career. What about what about Holland Argentina? That that's a, that's going to be a great game <laughs> yeah. tactically. How that's going to set up as well. The jerseys alone. Well, you know, nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But is Kev, where are you on Ronaldo against Messi in the final? Let's <laughs> sort it out. Best player in the world of all time. Honestly, honestly, Vinny, I think if Portugal continues to start Ronaldo, I don't think they get to the final. Oh, they've I, been honestly, so good. Oh, I don't know. They've been yeah, so no, good. Yeah, brilliant. But, 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 uh, but Vinny, honestly, I think that in the last couple of games especially, I think that... I mean, he obviously, he obviously, Fernandez obviously spoke to Ronaldo in that in that third game and said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm, rendi- I'm resting Fernandez, I'm resting one or two others, I'm going to rest you." And he's obviously told him, "I'm playing." I think if Ronaldo plays, honestly, I, I think they're going to get done. I don't think they're going to make it with Ronaldo in the side. If if they leave Ronaldo out, and I think they have a bit more flexibility, I think he's, I I, I still see him as that hindrance now, particularly in this tournament. Yeah. I don't think he, I I I I think. If Ronaldo plays, I don't think they get to a final. That's what I think. All right, and we, without him, I think that I think they've got a great chance. We got to leave it there for now. Kev in Qatar, thanks very much. Vinny in Dublin, thank you very much as well. A reminder: OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Some great stuff on OTB Sports Radio. Mick O'Connell, Sonia Sullivan, our State of the Union with uh, Stuart Lancaster. Um, uh, sorry, with Keith Wood, and then the show's live tonight with Monday Night Rugby and Joe Malloy in the host seat. Up next, Alan Quinn and live in studio to reflect on the weekend's rugby. First, here's Brian Kerr talking about England's form shortly before the performance of the tournament so far. I think there's much more of acceptance of those players now. That, they, yeah. that, that There's not a, defi- a definitive pecking order. Grealish probably feels in the pecking order, I'm either, I'm either four, five, six or seven. I'm not in one, two, three, yeah. you know. And I think that if if the manager has managed to achieve that, he's done a great job yes, to great to, point, yeah. to get the acceptance of those fellas. And Grealish has had to accept that a bit of Manchester City as well. In fairness to him, in fairness to Grealish, because people have um, uh, knocks at him for various reasons, seems like a decent skin in that respect. Ah, yeah. Well, That's I only something. ever heard good things about him when he was here. I mean, I, I still have... If, if, like all Irish people, we've accepted now. He's never played for we us. We haven't. I just, have we not? <laughs> no, well, we have like, we I was going, Joe, to under, under... I saw him playing under 21 games. saw him playing under 20, 19 matches live. And I went, this is the stick-out fella. This is the fella. He said, wherever it happens... <sighs> We've got to get him, we've got to keep him. And then he gets in and he plays a couple of months and you're going, oh. uh, you know, it's so sad. But he does seem to be a very good fella. Um, and, uh, you, you know, he came out with the Maya Culpa the other day on the Almiron one and owned up to it and said, I do say stupid things at times. I do do yeah. stupid things. And yeah, I'm a bit of a jacked lad, but I'm trying to get better. And, and oh, kind of forgive anyone a bit of self awareness. Exactly. Holding exactly. their hands up. Exactly. 
OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, time to turn to rugby. Alan Quinn is with us. Lots to get through from the weekend. We should start with Connacht. We're always getting uh, complaints from uh, Connacht fans. We don't do enough about them. Top of the bill, even though there's loads of other bigger stories. But uh, they were good at the weekend and they, they bounced back from last yeah, week. Yeah, they were, yeah. And I think um, I think it was a bit of a stop-start game, the Benetton, uh, Connacht-Benetton game on Saturday. But... Um, they're a good side to watch, Connacht. Do you know what I mean? The the attack, um, Paul Boyle was outstanding. Um, he's such a brilliant ball carrier. He's hard, aggressive, and he deserves credit for for you know he deserves to be mentioned and talked about. There's so many good back rows in Ireland. He was he was brilliant. Bundyak, he was good. Um, Benetton, uh, you know, a lot of mistakes, I think. But Connacht, um, they're right up there in in the URC as regards forcing turnovers. But unfortunately, they turned the ball over a good bit themselves. I think they were much better on Saturday at holding on to the ball. They came up with some mistakes, but um, it was a really good win for them. A bonus point win, and they bounced back. You, look, you'd expect them to beat Benetton. I was just Googling Paul Wall's age. He's 25. Is it like, is there? Is it too late for somebody at 25? It really isn't, isn't it, to catapult themselves into some kind of contention down the line? Um, yeah, he's got to start week in, week out. You know, I think um, with Connacht, um, he... It's not too too. He's not too old. You know what I mean. I think he can. Particularly in the back def- row, there's definitely players mature at different ages. There's some yeah, lads are nineteen twenty. He's hard. He's very abrasive. He's a really good ball carrier, and um, I just thought he was. He was. Uh, he got him over the game line continuously on Saturday and got a brilliant try. Um, he's a really good player, and I think you know. Look, without Connacht, people won't get carried away with this either. But I think it was a good response to. Um, the performance in Thoman Park the week before against Munster so I think it sets them up nicely they got Newcastle now in the Challenge Cup on Saturday home again so you know gather a bit of momentum um, get up the league table um, there's a bit of a congestion from 8th to about 12th or 13th Connacht are up to 11th um, and you know that's what they'll be striving for trying to get into those playoff spaces come the end of the season get some consistency and be a really difficult team to to beat. Sorry, I was just on the collect thing. Like Finley Beelan was talking during the week about after the Munster defeat, the players kind of getting together, and there were some tough words exchanged. And often a result like that nearly you you almost need to catapult your season because a negative can be turned into a positive with a bit of communication and butting of heads. I don't think they get carried away, Shane. With Saturday, um, yeah. I think Benetton had made they had a great win the week before against Edinburgh. They had eight or nine changes. A lot of internationals, Italian internationals on the team, but Connacht didn't belong play, and um, it's the perfect kind of game to get back on track. You don't want to be going away from home again. So um, I remember Finley Beelham saying that kind of after round three as well, before they played Munster, and look, most teams will pull the troops in and, and you know after the game or on a Monday morning and try regroup and get going again. But um, it was without getting carried away, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I just thought it was the right response. Yeah. They had a lot of energy and they never looked in, in any sort of trouble. So they need to and, back it up again. Yeah, and they've got Newcastle home in the Challenge Cup, so um, that's where it goes next Saturday. Uh, Munster, obviously, um, a very tricky first half for them, or certainly very tricky first half of the first half, and then they turned it around. What, where did the turnaround come from? I, I think the turnaround came from belief, Ger, um and your body language and your response, because I think that, group of players and maybe Munster itself 
that was three or four weeks previous, it could have got a lot worse. So I think, obviously, the playing personnel is different. They're getting a little bit of continuity in selection. There was a lot of talk. Could they afford to play the same team again against Edinburgh? Um, they kind of had no choice in a way, right? No choice. And in fairness, they um, they were really good, I think. And again, you can't get carried away with this. But, you know, I was ch- sitting there chatting with Adrian Friday morning. He was asking me for a prediction. I didn't think, yeah. I thought it was a tall order to go there and and, and get a win because um, a lot of Scottish internationals they had all their players back the only kind of chink I said well sometimes when you come back from a busy November they were kind of four weeks in the bounce all those the Scottish guys um, that's the time to kind of maybe see if you can unlock them and um, you know given the, the, the start of the game and Munster behind um, I thought the response was, was brilliant and um, you're starting to see a little bit of development around their attack um, their their shape they look a lot fitter we spoke about that at the start of the season um, they're trying to play with continuous pace whatever they're doing it's not you know just keeping the ball alive and a lot of energy in their kick chase as well and stuff defensively so they to work incredibly hard but I think the impressive thing is they didn't kind of start protecting a lead I think it was 28-17 when they got in ahead, maybe 22-17, the second half, they got another try, the Carberry try. They didn't start protecting. They kept going and could have got another couple of scores. So it was, it was impressive. And it shows that they've you know, they, they've had a tough start to the season and got a fair bit of criticism and question marks about them. And um, you know, they're not going to go and win the European Cup or, or win the URC, but they've given themselves a chance. Because that you think... Even a normal season, uh, if they'd started the season well, that's one that is always a really tricky one when you're going over there playing playing an Edinburgh side there. Good sign though, 12 points behind as you said, 31 unanswered points off the back of it. They're mentally, like, look, we kind of stuck the boot into Munster for a lot of the early portion of the season, but and, and rightly so based on the performances, but they're going somewhere now. And mentally, like to come back from that kind of yeah, the I gap is good. The, the big biggest issue they had was the chopping and changing, and, and that wasn't Graham Rountree's decision to start picking different teams each week. It was mm. the, card, the cards he was dealt. Um, they had 57 players used in, in the first seven games, which is a huge turnover of players and change. So the last couple of weeks, they've got a little bit of consistency and, and got to build a bit of momentum. And It's a nice handy run of fixtures they're staring into. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy. <laughs> Toulouse at home, Northampton away, Leinster at home, Ulster away, Lions at home, Northampton away the next six games. Yeah, They're yeah. good. That's like, it's, and it's difficult. Find to out a lot about yourself. There's going to there's gonna have to be some sort of change along the way. Oh, the same team can't play those six games. And um, I know the internationals are going to be have to get some rest in there as well as part of the policy so um, but they're in a better place than, and, than they were and people you know we, I asked a question for the podcast last week would they you know should we should we look for from to make some change and prioritise Europe or the league and you know the, the, the response was the league Right. Yeah, people want to be in. Make sure if you're trying to build something, it's you have to be there next season. Probably being in the Champions Cup next year is is a really important thing if you want to attract players and and keep that kind of um, high profile playing that high profile competition. Nothing like uh, French fancy dance coming to town on a Sunday afternoon in the European Cup though to get the blood up and like I mean. You know, obviously Toulouse will be favourites for that game. Yeah, they'll be very strong and the depth they have is unreal. Um, DuPont is back after he got a 
the suspension reduced, which was um, a little bit strange. But he's back. He's playing, and he's he's you know one of one of the best, if not the best player in the world. Um, he's a wonderful player. He just makes them so good. But I think Munster will definitely feel better about themselves. They'll have a little bit of an edge, and the, probably the challenge this week is. You know, after getting a couple of decent results, back-to-back wins, first away win of the season in the league, you know, can they keep that bit of fire going and, and not, you know, get a little bit complacent? But Where's Toulouse won't let you get complacent, really. No. Um, Toulouse are, are mild favourites for that. They're not. They're not heavy favourites for it at all. It's actually it's much more of a, a coin toss, um, according to the bookmakers at this stage. Um, where's the improvement coming from? You said there's some improvements in attack. What does that mean? Well, I think they're not. Their 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 shape is so much better. I think, and you know, it sounds pretty obvious. But you know, if you're fitter and sharper and, and get a bit of match sharpness going, um, you have that bit more energy. And I think Munster had a problem at the start of the season, particularly in the early games, around their fitness levels and just the ability to to play with a bit of tempo. Um, some of the execution and obviously. Um, the change in the style caused issues at the start so that's kind of bedding in a little bit better now and I think the players are probably better at looking up and seeing what's in front of them and, and running good lines you know the Calvin Nash try I thought was a great example of Munster hitting the front line rather than out the back and just getting the timing of that right and sitting down Edinburgh defenders um, so I think yeah even look at Gavin Coombs running onto the ball with a little bit of width um, he, we know how powerful and good he is in close and the pick and jams. But I thought, you know, you know, getting him a little bit wider and running on with pace. So, um, a lot of things. Um, I think the biggest improvement is just holding on to the ball and, and their attack shape. It's starting to really, really improve. Um, you still got to get your fundamentals right, and they had big issues in the scrum probably the week before. Um, so they're not the finished article and far from it but they're in better shape and I think it's it's it's, so proper it's fair to acknowledge here. that yeah. yeah yeah it is yeah the Munster to lose game was the kicking the kicking contest back in May in the, the quarter final like have Munster moved on from, from then have they improved have they gone backwards like as we said to lose demolished Perpignan at the weekend they beat La Rochelle in October as well so pretty decent results but I'm curious as to whether it's still a fairly evenly even contest it's too early to to kind of say yeah. Shane I think as, as Sunday will be a test of, yeah. of of that improvement you know you can you can get your backside handed to you very quickly in sport um, you can have two or three good weeks and then go in reverse so I just think what they've built is, mm. is a much better platform um, back in May it was a different scenario it was a kind of a do or die desperation scenario and to be fair the effort level the passion the the, the work rate out of the Munster players that day was phenomenal and um, it was an incredible kind of connection with the supporters again in Europe but ultimately they came up short they lacked that little bit of quality have they a little bit more guile now or ability to you know um, attack better I think probably but still they've got to f- get you know get it right up front against a powerful Toulouse side you'll see on Sunday they'll be able to bring on an international front row and international back rows and just so much depth in their squad but they're in better shape I think attack wise and I think that's important they still have you know a few injuries Munster and could do it some more depth um, but they're you know they're they're going into that game in a much better place there's um 
the match report from the Leinster Ulster game, which was a great game and a great advertisement for the the league itself, uh, is centered around whether or not it's going to be any fallout from um, the injury to Cooney, which is caused by James Lowe's elbow. Um, McFarlane will want to review James Lowe's collision with scrum half Cooney, says the Irish Times, which resulted in the latter also leaving the field for HIA. There was no sanction handed out to the Leinster winger, so it's more than likely going to be looked at, will it be? Um, Donahoe would probably know this morning that game was obviously Saturday night um, it could be um, I think James Lowe does run kind of upright and, and he uses arms and elbows and knees and everything to fend off players um, I think it, he could be in a he could be in a little bit of spot of butter it should have been looked at um, John Cooney is you know gets a fair whack there the elbow makes contact um, with his top of his chest head you know um, and given the current climate around around that stuff it's it was surprising that it was missed and not looked at So uh, Cooney went off with the HIA Ian Henderson went off with the HIA Stewart went off and wasn't replaced as well it's the, the level of uh, attrition at this stage is really high isn't it? It is but none of these guys would have went off before um, they probably would have been water bottle and Magic sponge. Uh, yeah, and that's the reality, and that's what we're seeing now. So it, it may seem like a bit scary as regards, but honestly, these players wouldn't have went off before, and I've been there myself back in when I played. Um, I've seen players around me getting heavy knocks. Um, you know, their HIA was the ten, next 10 minutes of the match that they didn't really have many involvements, and they were kind of dusting themselves down. So um, what's happening is right, and you bring on players instead of them, and... Uh, it's a good thing. I think, you know, obviously Keane Healy's red card was was a big moment in the game um, and it looked like it was costly. Ulster went on to be leading 22-3. Leinster were outstanding, you know, from the try just before half-time by Ronan Kelleher and then the second half. They just, I just thought Gary Ringrose is getting better and better and better. Um Wonderful performance for him, and he should, he's world class. I think he's added so much. Is this the peak? Is this a peak? Is he at a peak at the I moment? I don't know. He probably he probably wouldn't want it to be a peak, but you know. And there's no problem international players showing their their quality. Oh no, I don't um, mean not too soon, but like this is the, this is as good as he's ever played at the moment. I, I think he's, so. He's yeah, I think so. I think just and and what's different about Gary Ring was I think just everything. He's physical. Um, he's a bit. He's technique in contact. Um, his explosiveness, his pace, his decision making—he's um, just—he was wonderful the other night. The quicker you can get the ball in Gary Ringrose's hands, the better. He's—he's yeah. um, he's just a wonderful player, and and um, he showed magic the other night. Not not just with his tries, but overall, um, it was—it was an incredible um, response from Leinster. Uh, given you're talking about the psychological um, kind of scars of the, the, the red card from Keane Healy and then being 22-3 down like that's that's mental strength resilience and that's why they are where they are Leinster and um, I think Ulster were kind of shell-shocked at the pace the tempo the aggression they showed and ended up with two players in the bin themselves and at that point you just feel Leinster are going to change gears here and they did you know and they were incredibly impressive their next four fixtures as well. Like it strikes me, Leinster fans get to see a lot of, I guess, games that aren't exactly exciting and, and games that we don't uh, see too often, like like at the weekend. But Racing, Gloucester, 
Munster and Connacht between now and New Year's Day, which is decent. Yeah, and it's a bit of excitement it's, levels. Shane, it's a bit of a crystal ball scenario with, with, with Europe. You just, you know, it's on the day. If, if you know by body language of the opposition, you can, you know, I've often been in France where you think, oh, this might be, mightn't be so bad. It's one of the lower non-fancied French sides and, and you, 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 you just meet a different beast. Um, Racing have been going well. They have a lot of powerful players, sometimes inconsistent in the league, but if, when they hit the high notes, you know, they can be very, very difficult. So um, that's a tough challenge for, 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 for Leinster. Um, and they have a number of tough fixtures coming up, but they're, they're best equipped, aren't they, with the depth yeah. they have. And, and, you know, they have a number of players. Tyg Furlong went off, you know, after coming on the other day. Um, they're saying it's a bit of just uh, tightness in, 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 one of the, in one of the legs. Um, will Johnny Sexton be back soon? Um, who knows? But they have so much depth there, I think. Answer don't need him. He'd, <laughs> he'd be grand. <laughs> <laughs> one last thing, right? Um, uh, obviously, that's a joke for all the Lancer fans who are already angrily hitting caps lock on their um, keyboards. Um, Eddie Jones, today is, the, today is supposed to be D-Day. Do you think we hear immediately? Or if we don't hear immediately, he's staying? It may leak out. I don't know. Um, he's kind of final meeting with the RFU today and they go make their recommendations tomorrow and then announcement of Wednesday. That's what they're saying, whether he's staying or going. Will Greenwood uh, said on the show last week that uh, he... As far as he was aware, there was a four-man list. Everybody else was talking about a three-man list. I think there's a fourth. He wouldn't say it was. And then over the weekend, uh, Warren Gatlin suddenly started getting linked. I'm like, well, I'd say, um, I'd say Will Greenwood has a fair idea of, what, of what's going on. So I think that the most likely outcome here isn't Scott Robertson straight away, that they might just get... I think the, the most likely outcome here is Steve Borthwick. Right. Um, a long-term, immediate yeah, appointment. because I think he would have... He whether he will take the job straight away and leave Leicester, I think they're reading some of the English papers this morning. I think they were they're kind of reading themselves Leicester for okay. yeah, a, a replacement themselves. But who knows? He may survive. Um, it's I, I find it. I think they'll react in some way. There's been a big change over in staff, and Mike Brown has been on again. He's probably getting a little bit of revenge for for being omitted and not picked a few times by Eddie Jones. But um, I think he's running out of road, unfortunately for him. All right, Quinny, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. More from the Red Seventy Eight podcast from Alan and Neve later on this week. We're back tomorrow morning. Kev will be back with us from Qatar, reflecting on today's uh, pair of last sixteen games, which is Japan, Croatia, and Brazil, South Korea. Elsewhere, go by GA Chairman Paul Bellew will be on with us, talking to us about the the bumper year that they've had uh, on and off the pitch and plenty more to keep you entertained as well. Wayne Ryan has been chosen as the winner of today's Leopardstown Christmas Festival competition. Congrats, Wayne. And a, rem- a reminder to everybody else to tune in to OTBAM tomorrow and every day this week for your chance to win two hospitality places for the Leopardstown Pavilion. OTBAM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.